is Revelations Radio News with Andrew Hoffman and Tim Kilkenny on the Revelations Radio Network. Podcasting to you from the seaside town of Edmonds, Washington, where I am mourning the Chargers uh, not making the playoffs and getting ready to speak to an old friend. I am, of course, Tim Kilkenny, and I'm joined on the line by a man who is podcasting from the, uh, what would I say, the Grassy Hills, just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. It's a grassy knoll. Dr. Future of future quake fame. Wait, let's, let's let the applause die down for just a minute. All right, they're going crazy. All, all the accolades, yeah. Okay, I think that's over. Well, hey, I'm I'm so glad to be back with Tim the Revelator. Tim the Revelator. That's right. With all our Revelator listeners, there you go. Revelations right. Radio News, and I, I did have to fill you in on a couple things real quick. Uh, what had happened was... Well, I've been in a hole, by the way, so I haven't seen the light of day or humanity for an untold period of time. So, yeah, tell me what's going on with the above-ground world. Well, the above-ground world is doing good. Uh, Andrew and I have been spotty with our shows here in December. I actually uh, bailed on us last week. We were going to do a show right before Christmas, and I ended up with a terrible migraine. This year, this uh, la- this week, we were getting ready to do a show. We had a big thing planned, and uh, I just wanted to kind of do a kind of a retrospective of the year, talk about what happened this year, because I think I told you a little bit offline that I get real sick of all the podcasts that predict the future. And I think we've had our own share of those kind of podcasts where yeah. we, we get some... I hate, I hate any, any of those future-related shows. <laughs> well, you did some good ones, but I, I just nowadays it just seems like there's always doom and gloom in those prediction shows, and I think it's, it's uh, you know, kind of bordering on fear porn a lot of times and i just i even cringe at the idea we brought our old friend james corbett on here a few years ago and said hey predict the future you know and i don't know i just don't want to do that so i was wanting to do a retrospective uh turns out andrew was so excited about doing a prediction show when he found out we weren't doing a prediction show and that you were coming on he refused to do a show so you know take make of that what you will but uh i presume it's my appearance that caused (laughs) <laughs> well, and, and I'll I'll, re- I'll remember that from the uh, from the old guy that he didn't have to show up when I'm in town to visit you all over there. So on airwaves, he must think that the airwaves aren't big enough for the two of us or something. <laughs> that must be precisely what he thinks. So he is not uh-huh. here, and it's just us. Uh, first, let's check in. For those of you who don't know who Dr. Future is, I encourage you to go to futurequake.com and uh, over 300 shows. Probably Andrew and I's favorite, one of the, our favorite podcasts ever. Um, I think, as, as uh, Dr. Future likes to say, there's something in there to, to piss off everybody. Is that about right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would never use that kind of language. Oh, I'm sorry. There's I would some, just say something in there. A sin. <laughs> Am I on the Iron Show? Am I talking about Long Term and Johnny? <laughs> My fault. Something in there to offend everyone. Yeah. No, you're right. I'm sorry. I didn't want to piss you off by saying something like that. <laughs> My fault. I would. I shouldn't have used that language. But by, by the way, for all the futurians out there, or or wannabes. 
uh, I had a thought yesterday because I came across a, a DVD that had fallen in the back of a file cabinet that, that actually uh, had the what they called the barn rising when we actually activated Radio Free Nashville, which was the first week future quake came on the air. It was basically just a, a super hippie kind of out in the woods radio station that was starting. And that reminded me that April 5th, this upcoming April 5th, will be the 10th anniversary of the first episode of Future Quake. Wow. Wow. I think, uh, I, think uh, I saw President Obama was going to make that an official uh, Future Quake day or something like that. Is that right? Yeah, I actually heard that a lot of heads of state were doing that. Yeah. Uh, Ahmadinejad and uh, Kim Sung-il and a, a bunch of those guys. Yeah. Yep. So. Kim Jong Un, after he uh, got done with his movie, movie role, he was going to make a Future Quake Day on April fifth. So, uh, right, I look, right. I look forward to that. But yeah, ten years ago, can you believe it? What a ride it's been! And here you're still putting out podcasts. It's a different world. Well, I, I, I just come in to be a creaky old representative that come on to make people reminiscent when you, when you have me on. You know, I'm like the grumpy old man that comes on and says, "Back in my day." Back in 2006, we used to do it this way. That's right. But, you know, that is in in Internet world and and the rapid change of our knowledge base, that might as well be a thousand years ago. Strange, Because I can tell you, I'm radically different in my thinking and worldview from now, from 2005. And I would say the one thing that's the same is I still love Jesus, just like I did then. But everything else has been fair game for reevaluation. Hey, you know, that that makes you human, I think. Well, I always say that which we do not critique, we worship. And the Lord, Jesus Christ, is the only one that is worthy of no further critique and a position of worship. Everything else should be critiqued based upon him. And so we always find a lot of things to make us substitutes, which we call idols, be, be it your church denomination or pet doctrine or political party or blah, blah, blah. Uh, but when we quit critiquing, even our most precious valued, uh, ideologies, you know, and other values, when we, when we quit critiquing them, we set them up as a form of worship. And so I think that's healthy. And that's, of course, your show is a pinnacle of that activity. I don't know if it's pinnacle in any way, but, uh, we don't, we try we try to critique everything around here. That's for sure. We question everything, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't want to say trust no one, but we definitely question everything. I believe it's a way of worshiping God, because what it is is that you 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 show back to the Lord that He is the ground state of truth that is no longer critiqued. His His ways, His motives, His agenda is not critiqued, but everything else is, and it's a way of showing that everything else is not Him. So I believe it's in a way an act of worship to do it. Wow. Well, I like that idea. So put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> Will do. So, or whatever, or whatever y'all smoke in Washington State. I understand <laughs> there's more options available. There's absolutely more options available here. Uh, so let's move on into our year in review. What have you been doing this last year? Well, I tell you, this year. How do I say this in a way not to offend a lot of your audience? 
Uh, I am continuing, by the way, rumors of my demise are greatly exaggerated, okay? Mm-hmm. I almost sent a picture of me walking across a crosswalk with bare feet, just to perpetuate the, if you know what I'm referring to, sure. the the rumor of my demise, like Paul McCartney. But but actually, I'm still out here living the Ted Kaczynski lifestyle, just uh, uh, burrowed away here with Mrs. Future and Pyro, and uh, typing away on my book series, The Holy War Chronicles, The Spiritual View of the War on Terror. And uh, I just finished another volume. Uh, I've got really a total of five down and two to go. So, uh, but this one was, a, was, of all the controversial ones, very controversial. I'm looking at individual monotheistic faiths and their history. Uh, and this one was Judaism and its holy wars. And I had, I thought I had a little bit of a cursory understanding of the faith of Judaism and its history, and until I really started digging into it, and I know I've just scratched the surface, but 712 pages later, uh, I have found I knew very, very little about it, and what I discovered startled me. And I'm thinking, hopefully many listeners will feel the same way I do. And I came out of it a changed person. I came out with a different understanding of the gospel and my appreciation for Christ and the apostles and uh, a different way of looking at the Bible. So those are some pretty big things to come as a byproduct of a writing assignment. And so, uh, I, like I said, I've come out as sort of a changed person and hopefully one that can interpret Scripture in a more informed light. And now I'm getting into the dirty laundry for this year coming out with Christians and looking at Christianity and its holy wars. And uh, the first step will be going through the entire New Testament and referring to what, how Jesus dealt with the whole concept of confronting people of other cultures and faiths, and then what he imparted to the apostles and what they taught about it, and then get into the nuts and bolts of the history of Christendom. And so uh, that and a big, tall stack of thick books and thousands of articles and other references await for me for 2015. So that's what I'll be doing, and uh, that's where I've come from. I did take a little break. I just finished this last volume a few days ago, and uh, I started getting pigeonholed in my hole, so I tried to do something just to cleanse the palate a little bit for an hour or two. And so there's a favorite website of mine, I don't know if somebody ever goes to, called Kinder Trauma. I don't know, have you ever heard of it, Tim? I don't think so. Kinder Trauma, its slogan is, uh, your happy childhood ends here. And it's, it's a website for people to talk about the things that scare them and traumatize them as kids. And it's really more of a pop culture kind of thing. But it's, it becomes very uh, philosophical in a way. Because the things that terrify us in life reflect an underlying tone about who we are, how we perceive the world, that kind of thing. And it's mostly a lot of fun about uh, old made-for-TV movies, children's movies, commercials, television shows, anything uh, that just disturbed us and stuck with us into old age. So there's a lot of talk about clowns and ventriloquists, dummies. And just other things, an innocuous stuff that somehow just set people on edge. And it's a fascinating read. It's well done. And so Dr. Future drops it occasionally as my two cents. And I, I did one on the, a spate of uh, 
end of the world movies of uh, apocalyptic Armageddon. And there was a particular film that was like a five-minute animated film that was shown back in the mid-50s on the um, uh, Ed Sullivan show. And um, it was done by a British gentleman, and it was done in like a watercolor animation. And it basically showed a bomb blowing overhead and uh, the, the flesh eating away from people looking overhead and the animals and just totally devastated. And evidently, it caused panic in America. When it was aired, it traumatized an entire nation that saw it, and particularly its children. And I found out because of a former boss of mine who grew up in those days of the Cold War remembered hearing it through his room in his bedroom of this video, and it scared him to death as a child if he never forgot it now in his 60s. And uh, as I did a little reading about the broadcast of it, it turns out that there was one child they interviewed whose hair turned solid white from watching the the, uh, video on television in the 50s and stayed white the rest of his life. So that's quite a trauma. Um, And so uh, discussing some of these end-of-the-world movies made in the 50s, the ones that really shock a nation, change the way of view, think, is very interesting. But I'm writing one right now on the, uh, Christian scare literature. I don't know if you've ever done that as a topic on your show. But uh, I just happened to see something, and maybe it's been out for a while, and it's by somebody you may know. Do you know Dr. Catherine Albrecht? Yeah. She uh, does it RFID. Did you know that she had done a children's book? I did. Somewhat recently. She, she also is a big uh, proponent of and helps start uh, startpage.com, which is a. Oh, really? Which, okay. Which I think, uh, or she did the P. She didn't, let's see, I don't think she started it, but she helped to come on to do some of the PR and investigative stuff. And then they, yeah. even since then, they've actually started doing startmail.com, which is a. Uh, fully oh. encrypted, fully anonymous. If you lose your pass- yeah. password key, then you lose total access to your email. So, uh, yeah, she's oh. actually, she's actually been on. Uh, she did the RFAD stuff. She was on Freedom to Fascism. I think she was on the Future yeah. Quake show, right? Uh, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to remember if we actually worked that out to get her okay, on the so show or not. Just talk she's to a her. classic. She's yeah, classic. Yeah, I met her at uh, I met her at Doctor Stan Montes. Conference, Radio Liberty Conference. Well, and we actually got a lot of influx of listeners who come from the Corbett Report. He uh, seems to mention us fairly often there over there at the Corbett Report, James Corbett. And anybody familiar with the Corbett Report would know uh, he interviewed Catherine Albrecht several several times, including last year, talking about Startpage and and whatnot. So you're telling me she she wrote a children's book. Oh, it's a beautiful, I'm just looking at it now online. It's just this beautiful watercolor of Jesus on the little child with a a lion and a lamb laying in front of them, some little kids. And the title is, I Won't Take the Mark, hmm. a Bible book and contract for children. And I, it has a sampling of a few of the pages. The bottom line is, it's just showing people that, you know, somebody's coming to, to kill all the children. And uh, they have to sign a contract and back that they won't take the mark. So I guess so they won't go to hell. So, uh you know, I, I, I certainly appreciate the, the, the topic overall. I mean, obviously, we, we know that uh, the Lord will bring things to a conclusion, but I never would have thought for what appears to be more of a toddler or very young child age that that might be the best way to introduce them, you know, into Christian teaching and things like that. So uh, 
that's the kind of stuff that traumatizes young people, you know, when they're in church. Uh, I guess it's sort of a debatable kind of thing. So I was doing a little bit of a writing about uh, about that, and it, it led me to the whole idea of chick tracks, because chick tracks did the same thing for my generation. And I don't know, have, have you viewed many chick tracks? I have. You have? Yes. I think there's something like 300 million chick tracks that have been distributed. And... Um, you know, some of the ones, uh, people can look them up. The ones that really made an impression on me as a kid is because I, I actually would just find these, like in a public bathroom, you know, laying on a windowsill or different innocuous places. And it was like forbidden fruit to read a chick track. It was very subversive. And I can remember my mom catching me with one. And she told me to put it away and get rid of it because, you know, she didn't know what it was talking about and stuff which is just like telling a kid, you have to read this. And uh, so it had this certain just fascination with me. And they had to have the most um, horrifying, frightening, nightmare-inducing images that I can imagine of, of a religious fear were in chick tracks. And uh, some of the ones, that, that the real early ones, this would have been probably around 1970, 72, that I would have seen these, like uh, The Beast, The Last Generation, This Was Your Life. These are some of the famous ones that had always had lots of hideous demons. It had guys like with syringes shooting up drugs and kids. And, and uh, of course, you know, everybody was an enemy to Christians uh, in these. You had either the Catholics or the main ones and Muslims and, uh, you know, the Wiccans, and they made a long list of people who were the enemies. In fact, I, I would, it makes me wonder some days if, if evangelical Christians have a lot more enemies than Jesus does, which gives one food for thought, you know. But, uh, so anyway, that, that's a little something that I've been looking at the last day or two. Sure, there's a documentary called uh, Lord, Save Us From Your Followers. Which I have on my to-do list to watch. I have a copy of it, but I haven't seen it. Have you seen it? Yeah, it's a good movie. Okay, it's worth it. Well, if it meets the Kilkenny uh, seal of approval, then it's worth it. Well, time, so. there you go. There you go. So that's so what I've you've been, been doing. In, so slowly, oh, you're, I, the, you're, you're right. Yeah, you're, this, oh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, this is just a little little thing I do to cleanse the palate for an hour or two to get back right into the... I've already started organizing the next volume and have all the materials put together. So start writing out of scripture. The thing that I enjoy the most of these of these writing projects is writing on the topic directly the words of, out of the words of scripture. And uh, the Bible is more alive to me and means more to me now. Jumps out and shows me new things after having been a Christian for you know over 40 years. Um, it really shows me more vivid today new lessons than it has my entire life. Cool. Well, there you go. There's a good inter- introduction into who Dr. Future is. For Like I said, we got a lot of new listeners coming from the Corbett Report, and they're just going to say, who is this Dr. Future guy, and what is he talking about? People that are that have uh, ter- they're turning their hair white, <laughs> watching uh, yeah. end-time, you know, uh, I guess trauma, end-time trauma, and that's... Well, that, that's just a little thing. Yeah, but, you know, on, to, on a broader sense, if, if I mentioned this, this, this was in the last 24 hours what I was doing. But in a broader sense, for relevance and new listeners, by the way, you go to futurequake.com under the past shows tab, you'll find 
just about anything you can imagine. Talk about even Joe operates talking about the drive-in movies and social culture. Um, Jesse Ventura, Alex Jones, everything. But in a broader sense, I have a bigger concern as of late about the evangelical culture, which I come from, uh, getting even deeper into its siege mentality and circling the wagons and basically just acting out of perpetual fear that everybody's out to get us and basically looking out for our own skin. And uh, I know I was just at uh, church and they were showing this God is not dead movie, which which basically just gives a feeling that, you know, very anti-intellectual, very anti-academic, flee any kind of educational background or looking at people with different perspectives or whatever. Um, And I'm afraid that we're seeing an eclipse of the influence of what we would consider the traditional Christian culture in society. And there's probably good reasons for it. In fact, one book I have on my to-do list down the road, I'm calling an evangelical Gothic. And I'm looking at the evangelical institutions like one would look at a Southern Gothic novel, where, where instead of just looking at a Southern society decaying, along with its decaying structures and its antebellum homes and, family structures, we have a decaying infrastructure in our evangelical institutions. You know, the Grand Rapids, Colorado Springs, Empire, Nashville empires of these big ministries that focus on the family types and family research counts and things. And they're getting to the point where they, they feel like they have peaked and now they're retracting in a fear, fear mode fear of what the future holds, fear of people that are different, fear of not relating to a, a culture and young people today. And, uh, you know, the old, the old uh, I guess it's probably just an anecdote about the Chinese symbol for a crisis is the combination of the Chinese symbols for fear and opportunity. And I'm afraid they've turned into the glass half empty, uh, crowd that are just looking at the, uh, you know, the, the fear part of things and the danger without looking at the opportunity that this generation holds with the gospel. And it's a generation today that really has no beef with Jesus Christ or his basic teaching. They just have a beef with all the other foolishness that they see that goes along with it. And our evangelical leaders are either going to have to figure out how to separate the baby from the bathwater or they're going to be long forgotten and put on the shelf. So I am concerned in a greater extent, if you go back and look on, you know, the World Net Dailies and the other big Christian talks on the Internet and on TV, it's mostly a fear crisis-based management. It's not based on opportunity. It's not based on reconciliation. It's not based on empathy, uh, understanding the differences of others and why they feel the way they do. Uh, even though know, it may not be completely justified to perspectives, however, there's reason, just pause for it. Uh, they're rather, rather circling the wagons. And uh, it's going to be shows like yours, Tim, that are going to be the few that still have a reliable testimony to the next generation that comes. And a lot of other stuff's going to be left behind and probably for good reason. Well, I appreciate that vote of confidence, uh, whether deserved or not. 
I, uh, I always find whatever you're looking into interesting. Although I, I do know that, uh, several people that I know are anxious to start reading your books. So, uh, how much, well, how I much appreciate your patience. Wait? I think we had you on a year ago and you said it'd be, you'd be finished by this year. And I think it's on to two years. How, how long is this going to go? Are you, you making, you making a liar out of me? I'm no, not I'm making a liar out of you. I think you're a liar. I'm, to be honest, I think I'm, I'm being a lot, uh, more cautious than, a, than, uh, <laughs> certain Andrew me, Hoffman maybe. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, what was this book? Like 140 pages or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> now, like it was a that. good book. Don't get me wrong. I've signed his praise many a time. It's been an inspiration for me. But uh, just the current volume I finished was, was a breezy 712 pages. Now, a person might rightfully ask, and I hear in close quarters to me many times, who in the right mind would want to read this kind of stuff? I think when people get into start reading it, uh, if they get through the first few chapters, I think I hopefully we'll be able to keep them booked with some of the revelations that are in it. So what started out as a single book, Tim, and then went to be as in, as ambitious and brought us to be a three-volume series, it has now sort of solidified into a six-volume book series uh, and a spinoff book It's already been drafted, of which five of these have already been written, at least, you know, the, the, the initial draft, and there's two left to go. So having written about 2,500 pages, so far, and hopefully there's worthwhile information that's worth the read for the discerning, thinking listener that cares about what's going on in the world. Um, hopefully it'll be worth the wait for everybody. Um, there's tens of thousands of references. Uh, the stuff that you'll see me saying in here and, and alleging uh, is backed up with solid top-line references that people can use to share with other people. And so all I'm saying is is that as I got into this, I found off I bit into something a whole lot bigger than what my original vision was, right or wrong. Now, maybe it's just the way I do things, you know, to excess. Uh, I mean, we did have a six-hour concluding show on Future Quake, so I sort of played my hand a little bit there. But um, hopefully they're going to have something that will help them be able to communicate and share with the naysayers in their midst with hard evidence to show that there's more than meets the eye than what we hear from our mainstream media, and particularly our Christian media. And uh, I'm hoping people will find it worthwhile. And it's a challenge for me. Nobody wants to have something on the street more than me. But I have a duty to all of the great people that are your listeners, old teacher quake listeners and on, to try to do it the right way and try to do it completely. So I appreciate your patience with me in it. And uh, all I can tell you, I'm working from morning until the wee hours of the night daily. And the things that I'm discovering are, are blowing on my mind. And I think it'll really fascinate them. I've let a few people do a quick glance, uh, guys like Robert Hyde and others, at the work. And uh, the feedback they've given me, they feel like a lot of the information is transformational. So I'm hoping it'll be at least of some value, educational value for the listeners. And, you know, the people who listen to your show and, and what few shows there are, anything close to it, are highly educated on what's going on in the world. They're very aware, but I think they'll still find a good number of surprises in this writing and particularly have good, reliable references that they can approach people from a, from a Christian worldview that's honest, that's reliable, that's well-researched and defendable uh, and will cause 
a lot of disconcerted views for your standard Christian people as much as others. And all that's good. We all need to be shook up. Well, we do have a lot of listeners that aren't Christians, so uh, they're kind of... And you know what? I'm glad they're there, and I respect them, I appreciate them, and you probably, you're, you're honest truth seekers, and that's the only criteria I have for my respect, is that you want to seek the truth. Well, I don't want to sell our listeners short, and I certainly would never sell you short, but I think that you you might be counting too much on the American public to think that they would be interested in reading 2,500 pages when the average person can hardly get through reading a 100-page uh, book. But I, I do know those that are interested in the world have the intellectual capacity to do so. And uh, I guess if you span them out over a, a, a you know, you don't drop all 2,500 pages at once, it's, 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 it's a lot more doable, huh? Well, I expect everyone to do that in one sitting, of course. Yeah, sure. Yeah, you know, one sitting. I don't. Yeah, before you stretch your legs, you got to get no, no. There, there's uh, there's really a total of seven books that will be coming out. Um, uh, it's hard to, to for do us. them the right way. I have to have them prepared. I have to have them street prepared because when when they're out on the street, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to be busy. If you'll have me back talking on the show sure. to share with people uh, what's in them, anybody else that'll listen to me, and hopefully make a lot of new friends with some new folk. And uh, there will be no time to be uh, changing, modifying, completing other volumes, uh, because that's going to be a busy time of just talking and sharing. There'll be a lot of material. It's the kind of thing where I, I, I would be surprised if you would want to cover it in a single show. Uh, and hopefully it'll give a lot of fodder to, to talk about in it as well. But I can tell you, the if I if I release the initial ones right now, the odds of the last ones getting finished uh, are extremely low. Well, I'm just trying to say, uh, I get a chance to talk to you on a pretty regular basis, so I, uh, yeah. I understand where you are with the uh, yeah. books and stuff. But it's hard for our casual listeners, because you were on this show uh, exactly a year ago. Talking about mm-hmm. the three series book that will be coming out sometime in in the the year twenty fourteen. So I hope it I, wasn't. I hope it wasn't a year ago. It was that size. I think I I think it already slipped by that time. But I could be wrong. I like time's a little bit of a blur to me when you're noting the books all the time. Sure, sure. Well, I'm just trying to speak because, like I said, I talk to you on a regular basis. Not all. Yes. Yeah. Not everybody has the uh, the opportunity to do so. And I think the last time we talked to you. You know the books were going to be out this year, so it's it's. I'm just uh, asking the questions, and like I said, it's probably a good thing that Andrew refused to come on, or else we'd have a real showdown here. Today. Well, well, uh, I will take my reprimand, and I will just <laughs> retort. I will just retort that 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 these topics are are serious enough yep. uh, that they require a responsible enough treatment. And I'm not saying I'm necessarily the best guy to do it, okay? I'm just doing it because nobody else is stepping up. I'm giving it the Chris White method of research. I'm giving it my best effort. No one's doing it. I guess I'll have to do it. (laughs) Yeah, I am. I'm giving my best effort. And I'll tell you a case. This case in point on this current volume. Um, I I was uh, when I had expanded my work. I had, had planned this current volume to to combine both the history of Judaism and Christianity with regard to their history of dealing in holy wars. I thought, well, maybe I can finish a 300-page work on that. And as I got into the, the Judaism first and looking at some of the current events, 
when I began to discover in the modern Israeli papers about the fact that they were doing magic, some of the top rabbis, some of the guys that the Bible prophecy guys go gaga over and cite, like the head of the Temple Institute, for example, when it comes out in the Hebrew versions of the newspapers uh, of late, that they're doing death hexes out of magical texts, like Witch of Indoor stuff. I had to know more. When they're throwing curses on John Kerry or uh, Prime Minister Rabin right before his death or Sharon or others, frankly, I didn't have any idea who these people are or what they were doing. And so one thing led to another. So I had to get into a crash course of what is really modern Judaism all about and why is this treated as commonplace in Israel. And that really opened a Pandora's box for me, which is not uncommon from, from this whole effort for me. I think that you speak for most of our listeners when you have to, when you say, I don't know who these people are. <laughs> I mean, we, I don't know who those yeah. people are either, you know. Yeah, and I'm not saying I know for sure now, but I know a whole lot more. Sure. Uh, after going through several thousand references, mm-hmm. reputable references, you know, from uh, you know, from uh, the trustworthy Jewish sources in particular, uh, primarily, uh, to, to learn about why is Jewish magic and sorcery accepted today? Uh, why is it so prevalent? Why do our Christian leaders not seem to care? Um, how does it affect Christians and what their plans are for Christians? You know, this is just one revelation to me out of a bunch. Uh, having been raised up as a classic evangelical, strong, you know, Zionist, strong uh, prophecy buff, all these other kind of things. There's so much information that we've not been told. So for, or somebody, I wasn't. for somebody that's not a Christian, why should they care? Why should they care? Well, first of all, we should all just be truth seekers, regardless where you come back, where you come from, Christian, non-Christian, whatever. Um, and I respect a person who is willing to step out of the whole maze and the uh, the hypnosis of entertainment, uh, entertainment, sports, the video game culture, everything else. And there's a time and place for all that, and in moderation. But when they step out of it and say, life should have more meaning than this, why do we have hungry people in the world starving and other people with money they don't know what to do with? Why do we have some countries that feel like they can just go occupy places and are surprised anybody has issues with it? Why are all these other injustices and evils in the world? Um, I respect people who, who, one, ask those questions, take time to ask, realize that they're their brother's keeper and realize they have a responsibility to do something. We have a, we have a commonality there in that. Um, I find, and I think most people who are generally honest, when you look at the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth, they are the most direct teach, teachings that relate to how to address those basic injustices and how to derive a development of a society that can last eternally. And it, and it is a society based on love. It's based on forgiveness. Uh, and, of course, the story of the gospel is that God took the first act to establish that himself. Uh, and then we perpetuate that uh, as a forgiven people to others. So, you know, the basic teaching that he espoused, I've never heard anybody really give a problem, unless they're like an Ayn Rand 
individualist Darwinist. That's basically every person for themselves. But aside from that, normal people of goodwill like it. It's all the other kind of junk that comes in along the way that's the problem. And I have a problem with that junk, too. Even though some of it's been part of my culture, I've, I've loved it. It's been close to me, a lot of the slogans, a lot of the other kind of stuff. Uh, and um, I want to be a person who's empathetic to the suffering of other people and understand the stranger, the people of a different culture, people who are not like me, and see them as human beings, recognize that we have a different perspective on some things. But really, a lot of those things are exaggerated. A lot of things we share in common. Uh, and so... Um, this is something that we shouldn't be dividing ourselves based upon different levels of our understanding of, of different revelation and things like this. Uh, we, we have some common need for humanity. And I, you know, I have my opinions about Christ and about our relationship to him. I'm not, I apologize for that, but I don't pose a threat to anybody who doesn't. I have no desire to force my beliefs on anybody. Uh, I don't have any desire to impose or be dominionist in any stretch or form. Um, I, I just want to show an example by my life that's that is selfless as I could do and make it and, and actually cares as a brother keeper for somebody. And I don't think I have any problem uh, having any respect from somebody of a different culture if they could truly see that in my life. And so, you know, that's, that's something I think that uh, uh, unites us. People of goodwill can be united, even though we have some differences on some finer points and even bigger points of theology or other big picture issues of life. We can at least express a common humanity. And uh, that that's not a threat to people of Christian faith in that view. No, I would, I would totally agree with you. So, where to from here? Should we get into our year in review now? Sure, why not? What did you think about this year? Obviously, a couple different things happened politically, but it was a it was an interesting year. And there's one thing I wanted to touch on real quick that I think kind of set the tone for some of the year. Well, first of all, you said how was my year? Yeah, I have to say my my life was a was a sham, and uh, I have been reprimanded by you today since I was not able to deliver publication on my book. So <laughs> between you and Andrew, I guess I have to conclude that my life was a lie and that I was a miserable failure because I didn't get the books published. Hey, nobody... I did get a 712-page book research and written, um, but that was pretty much it. Well, you know? Hey, I'm telling you this. No one here is reprimanding you. I am just speaking for all of those people who are anxiously awaiting your book. And of you know, on our podcast, I don't think that we had heard that it had turned into to six books. Um, yet. Yeah. So but... I, I, we just didn't know. I'm, not, I'm certainly not but... here to reprimand you, but... I do know that I have the uh, the privilege of being able to speak to you fairly often, and I was trying to imagine for somebody like a casual listener who's come over from the Corbett Report, they would think, "Yeah, wasn't this guy on last year talking about he was going to release a book?" So that was all I was trying to get an answer to. I don't, yeah. I don't mean to reprimand you in any way. Um, I also don't. I, I, I did. I wrote zero books this year, and uh, me and Andrew only occasionally do a podcast. Unlike the uh, the uh, three hundred. Uh, monumental individual episodes of future quakes so no i'm certainly not here to reprimand you i just wanted to kind of come from you know to kind of catch up those those the casual listener well by the way we'll move on to this but 
I was just joking with you, but a uh, <laughs> casual listener from the Corbett Report, Mr. Corbett's a cool guy. I listen to his show. Uh, I think we're all of us are cut from the same cloth. You all must be cool people if you're listening to the Corbett Report in this. I'm lucky to hang out with a crowd like that. Um, please cut me a little slack. I'm working hard on these books. Uh, but all in all, it's been a pretty good year for me. Not income-wise by any stretch, because I've sort of foregone my career to focus on these things that I care about. And I'm hoping we create a culture that all of us put the things that we care about, particularly when it's intervening for other people beyond our own material gadgets or whatever we want. But I know you're ready to talk about the world at large and what's going on. Sure, sure. Well, and, and don't forget in the in the uh, in the interim there in the during the year, maybe about halfway through, you, you got Doctor Future uh, got to stand up next to Tom Bionic, your co-host, who got who was married and is now domesticated and experiencing so, life as a married man. The royal wedding you're talking about the royal of, of weird of, of weirdness radio. That's right. Well, it, which, by the way, was not a year ago that I was on the show. I think I was hijacked uh, six months ago. That's right. Very good I was, point. I was minding my own business so at the venatorium, yep. and suddenly this call comes in. I was bumped, or whatever they call it, uh, with your all show at the time. That's right. You and, were on six uh, months ago. I apologize. Although I still really am disappointed that we didn't have more of a formal diplomatic wedding where, where all of us wore tails and wore sashes with the podcast that we represented that we could have been introduced like head of state. I think that's a great idea. I, I, I think that I need to get into more, uh, I need, I need to be a part of more, uh, uh, events where I wear a sash. I mean, I think that, you know, the only problem is revelations radio news is such a long one. I'm going to have to, have, it's going to be really fine. Yeah. Part, but you know, right. I know. Well, the only other thing I was worried about is that really, with everybody there, with Chris White and the long Adam Saints and Conspiracy Norm on this long list of people, we needed to have one or two of us stay away from the place, just like how they don't have the whole presidential cabinet go to the State of the Union address <laughs> because of bombs and stuff like that. And I was really afraid that the whole Christian Weirdness Radio movement would be wiped out, you know, with one well placed bomb, you know, because we have so many detractors. If your email box is like mine, any one of them gets an opportunity to take us out. <laughs> my, I don't think my email box is like yours. Or uh, I think I would, you know, you might be more along the lines of Chris White and James Corbett. That you guys have the inboxes that are full of the people that uh, either want you to do something different or are upset with the things you've done. Not we don't have well, enough, if you, we don't have enough listeners if, for that. If you feel cheated, just ask a question about AA. Okay. And you'll get plenty of it. Yeah, I had a lot of people tell me they wish I would die and go to hell. Okay. Okay. Well. So. Oh, that's right. I forgot about your AA. Uh, if you feel left out, that's just my hint for you what to do. There you go. Well, and then I could go after ancient aliens or any of those others too. So, I think to be honest with you, I think Chris White uh, bears the uh, world championship for most yeah. enemies on the internet. But he's a lightning rod for the rest of us. He really is. So some things that happened this year, I just have, this is kind of pulled up from the Daily Telegraph over there in the UK. It's a very general list, but I just wanted to look back at some of the bigger events and not necessarily talk about the events, but more kind of talk about the theater of these events and kind of the direction that these events have led the rest of the country and the world in. 
And the first one that comes up here is uh, some sort of a scandal in France, and we'll just skip over. Some of these are kind of trivial, not world news, but we'll skip over those. Uh, the next one comes February 18th, the Ukraine revolution turns violent in Kiev Maiden. Maidam. And, you know, looking back at, uh, at Ukraine, uh, you know, it, it proceeded, it proceeded, it continued to get worse throughout the year. And I'm still not 100% sure what's going on there. Um, I think that it's become kind of a point, a flashpoint to, to, to start the new Cold War between Putin and the United States. But at the same time, I'm a little bit more of the uh, of the thought process that behind the scenes, you know, those guys are all kind of buddies anyway. Uh, so is it just a uh, kind of the, the beginning of a fake dichotomy, you know, between the, the evil uh, Russians and the, and the United States and... Uh, one thing that I can say that came out of this was it was a continuation of the good guy, bad guy meme where Putin was clearly the bad guy. He wears the black hat and the United States and the Ukrainian revolution or revolution. You know, they are the, uh, the, the good guys. Mm -hmm. So, you know, on a bigger picture on that, that intrigues me is that when do they decide when this needs to be on the front page and when is it to the point where you just don't start hearing about it for weeks at a time? Exactly, because this story actually never ended, but it did fade. From, yeah, it did fade from the front uh, page. It's not like everybody just quit. I know I'm sounding very Corbett task. No, that, uh, that's in these things, but that that's the thing that gets me is that there is a reason. It's not just an accident that they talk about this ad nauseum, and then suddenly you don't hear about it for a long time. It's not just that. It's it's a whole host of stories over the course of the year. And there is a reason. It's not random. Uh, my suspicion is is that they'll push some of these kind of things, and then they'll assess the public's reaction or what they can sense. If it's something that's grabbing, if it's something that's moving people politically to get behind politicians to do certain things, they'll keep it up. If they feel like it's starting to cool, they'll move on. It could be something as practical as the fact that, well, our ratings are going down. Exactly. People are getting bored of hearing of it. You know, a very pragmatic reason. We just, uh, we're just not getting a bite out of people. We'll move on to another story. Because they're very, very shallow. And they've created a public that's shallow. I don't know. It's like chicken and the egg. Which was shallow and superficial first, the public or the media that serves them? I, I blame the media, but... Um, what they would say, the same thing politicians say. We just give people what they want. And uh, that's what Hollywood says with their movies, with every movie that looks like a Transformers movie of a robot stomping on a building. Well, that's what the people want. And we'll give it to them until we run it into the ground. And that's what news does, uh, rather than uh, being concerned about the public interest. And so um, that's that's a big question to me with you, Frank. We know, I know you know, and I'm preaching to the choir as well as your listeners, that you, you cannot trust the information that's coming out from our media. Everything is a press release. You know, we, we see it as supposedly as a news story, hot off the wire. But these are carefully engineered press releases from everybody that are meant to be read as if they're news. And um, we've already had, you know, some things that were bunked and then counter-debunked uh, as far as, you know, who did what to shoot down the airplane in the Ukraine and, and these other kind of things, and uh, 
uh, unless you can find somebody on the ground, you know, and then admit that they're going to have their biases. I don't know how how you could know. And and this is what leads me to the whole view, the non-interventionist view. Some people like to call it isolationist, and that's really not what it is. It's the fact that since you can't get reliable information on these things that are a matter of life and death, why would you want to wade in with money and lives at stake on something that you can't even sort out what's going on on the ground? And uh, this is why I wish our country would do now what it used to do through most of its life, that if you saw some kind of event going on overseas that you thought a terrible injustice was being done and you wanted to support the cause to, uh, you know, to defend or rebel or do whatever against this injustice, good loyal Americans would set aside their citizenship and they'd park themselves overseas and they'd take up a gun wherever they, wherever they felt like they needed to. And they would go, in fact, this was done in World War II. Uh, you know, before, years before we entered the war, there were Americans, Canadians that left their homeland and went and enrolled in the British Army. Uh, and they went and fought, you know, as, as the British people. And they weren't dragging their government or their fellow citizens into it. They went unconscious. The more typical case is what we saw with the Spanish Civil War, which was just a few years before that in Spain, where you had the, the fascist, you know, pro-Nazi uh, Franco regime fighting the communists on the left. And so you had all these famous uh, Americans, you know, like Hemingway and, and, or, and George Orwell go in and these other famous people going in legitimately trying to stop fascism. And what did they find out? They, you know, on my understanding, they basically found out that both sides were corrupt, that the whole thing was inept, you know, and there was nothing being accomplished by them. And they were very, very disillusioned. And so I wish we would just say, look, people, if you feel like there's something terrible going on in Ukraine or Africa or wherever, then great. Follow your conscience, set aside your citizenship for a while, go over there, take up a gun, and enter the fray. And what you'll find out is that the average American, by and large, will suddenly find some other excuse not to get involved further. But as long as it's easy for them to contract out their morality and conscience to a standing army we have here and to basically have them get into the morass to serve their moral interest, then they're quick to do it. In fact, as a minimum, at a minimum, what we ought to do is what they used to do when, when they wanted to go into another military conflict, you didn't go borrow debt to do it. You went and sold bonds. So somebody had to come up with money to finance this expeditionary work overseas. And suddenly when somebody's got to reach in their pocketbook and they start counting with their own hand, the money it's going to take to go fight a battle that's murky with people that are poorly understood, it would totally change the dynamic that we see. Yeah, but see, it's even worse than that now because the large corporations are the ones who have their hands in in big government and big, big big, uh, what is it, a military industrial complex and mm-hmm. they're they're going after their interests. I mean if you think that they're going over there to spend money, sure they're spending the government's money, but they're turning around to make themselves and the government, you know, the, all these right. people privately invest in all these things. They invest in all this stuff to make themselves money too. I mean, the, the Ukraine's a perfect example. We had Joe Biden's son, the same one who was in the military for like all of 3 months this year and was kicked out for cocaine. They put him in charge of uh natural gas over there in Ukraine after the uh, 
uh, country started to kind yeah. of fall apart. And that's the end yeah. all of these people. So, right. you know, the idea that us reaching into our pocketbook is going to is going to keep people uh, honest or make them think twice is I mean, well, I, I'm talking about I'm talking about putting our soldiers into the fray, getting officially engaged. Now, our corporate interests getting their noses involved in this stuff sensing for a dollar. You're right. That's a big deal, and they need to be held accountable for it. I think I think it's almost idealistic to think that the corporate interests and the our soldiers are separate at, at this point. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't know what to I don't know what to say of that. Other than I just think if people, if citizens want to get involved, in, and it may be a legitimate uh, engagement overseas, and they see an injustice, if if you put the onus on them to personally go over and pick up a rifle like the old days and engage in it, you'll find a lot of people lose interest in what they were riled up to do sure. rather than us officially taking our army and, and being the policemen of the world or, or worse yet being the bullies of the world. Um, and, and when people have to understand in the pocketbook, when they, when they want to engage their army and doing everything in this world, because they want a quote, strong America, Strong means how many soldiers, troops do you have in how many countries, uh, that there's a price to be paid. And right now they just push it on their grandchildren. The corporate thing is a whole another enchilada. And in fact, uh, you know, the worst case scenario on that I see is the case of World War II, where, where you have the, the, the three guys who built the, the Third Reich, which they couldn't have done the Blitzkrieg or anything else, or, or even the Final Solution was the head of IBM, the head of General Motors, the head of Ford, who who made money and profited over building all of the vehicles that were used for the Blitzkrieg. And, of course, th there's no way that the, the Holocaust system could have been run without Thomas Watson and IBM that, you know, ran the networks that from the tattoos that were put on the people's arms were proprietary IBM hollers code, punch card codes, uh, with the IBM offices supposedly right at each of these places. You know, all that was done in advance before we entered a war. And people say, well, a Hitler kind of case is one where we really had to go to war. Well, the time that should have been stopped is when the American corporate interest began getting us to the point of no return. Brown Brothers, Har and that's, Harriman, uh, George yeah. Walker Bush, uh, the Volkswagen Corporation. Yeah, those uh, all kind of came out the wrong side of the war there, didn't they? And and now, again, naive? Sure, I'm naive. Anytime you try to look for solutions in a world that's dying, it's naive. I the don't question think, is... I don't think you're naive. I'm just saying that... Uh, yeah. I, I, I guess this is... Here's the deal. You are a positive person, and this show is full of sarcasm, and we don't... Uh, and I've never used sarcasm before. I know. It's unique Have to you me. ever heard yeah. of it? It's a thing we do on here. It's very interesting. Uh, we say yeah, things I'm... that aren't real in in, a, in an attempt at humor. Uh, but I, I guess we're almost cynical or jaded to a point where uh, we start talking about these things. Um, well, I guess you know when I've almost... when I've given a talk when I've given a talk on these very depressing topics at conferences. Mm -hmm. I have never I have never completed a talk, even though most of them are real downers without having a closing slide of what can you do? What can you do? I don't care how much you feel it's a lost cause. I don't know how much you, for your own soul's sake and for the sake of the testimony of the hereafter. 
And if your listeners have different views on what that is and how, you know, maybe they just say it's karma or whatever, uh, I have other views. But regardless, there is an accountability for our action. And one thing we don't want to be are guilty bystanders. Okay? And the, the one way you do it is, one, you don't participate in evil doing when it goes on. And two, you, you don't tolerate without exposing the light on it. And if you can chip away at it just a little bit, well, that'll inspire the next guy to chip away at it a little bit, the next woman or whoever. And so, uh, sure, it's naive. But what else I we got? I never to do? said you were. And our other hands in our pockets. I said, never said you were naive. I've seen it as idealistic to separate the intention from the uh, economic interest. Yeah. 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 Well, they'll always be there. Babylon will always be there in that economic interest. But also, one of the only commands that we see from prophetic literature in the Bible is to get out of Babylon. And that would be an awfully good discussion. I'm sure you all have had discussions of that one form or another on your show. But, um, you know, that's part of the process of getting out of Babylon. All right, to the next thing. Malaysian Flight MH370 lost. Now, this one I have a lot of different thoughts on, but I wanted to hear what you thought. So this officially was, I think it started on March 8th, and this proceeded to dominate the news for, was it 60 days? I mean, two full months? I mean, it was unprecedented wall-to-wall coverage a flight goes missing in the air um first off i don't believe it's possible uh second off i don't understand what the the significance of it was and third i cannot believe that nothing else happened during that 60-day period that was worth covering uh by the mainstream media but i'm not surprised that they didn't what were your thoughts on the malaysian mh370 flight loss well, you know, it's sort of frustrating to me because in my former life, I was part of the crash investigation process for the Air Force. That's right. If if there was a fire-related event, uh, particularly if it involved a fatality, that went up to a whole other sphere. And on, on some occasions, I would be brought in to evaluate stuff. So I was familiar a little bit how it's done. And, you know, I've got some FAA and other military training stuff on the protocols and things like that. And I think most people rightfully ask themselves if everybody's cell phone can track all of us where we are, how come you can't track an airplane in real time where it is? And when they say, well, they just haven't bothered to upgrade to it, that's a little hard to swallow for me. Uh, to, to say with everything else I ever track, you know, you could sit in the airplane itself and watch the screen and track exactly where you are on the screen. That's right. Yeah, that's a good point. How come a per- how come a person can see it there and somebody on the outside can't? Uh, you know, air traffic control or something like that. And so, uh, you know, the only breakthrough, and I don't even know if it's true or not, you know, that's true for a lot of data we get, was it was recently I saw a headline from a guy who was a former head of a, an airline who said, and I don't even know how he came privy to this information to pursue it, was that uh, he was confirming that the Air, U.S. Air Force did shoot down the airplane because they thought it had been artificially commandeered <laughs> externally. And it was shot by an Air Force plane close to an Air Force base, which I presume that probably was uh, Diego Garcia. But, uh, you know, but I didn't even bother enough. I didn't know if it was reliable enough to bother reading it in depth and pursue it further. That, that's the only thing I've heard, you know, excuse the pun, but it has fallen off the radar screen. 
<laughs> as a story. And uh, uh, so I really don't have much to add on it other than to say we've not heard any wreckage that has come to shore anywhere. And uh, unless it's all gone into that big mega garbage dump, they say that somewhere in the Pacific, that's like the south of Texas or something like that, uh, I don't know an explanation on why something hasn't come to shore somewhere uh, noticeable uh, or a debris field that, you know, floating material, things like that, other than something, some skullduggery was done. And my guess is, since you didn't hear a lot from the Malaysian air people, you know, updating the family members and others, it could be just their incompetence. It could also be because of sort of a gag order they had from some of these other government players. How can we ever know what they were told to be quiet about until things were sort of taken care of? You know? Sure. Uh, we just don't know. I mean, obviously, the average person will say, that sounds so conspiratorial. But on this story, I think people are more likely to accept something possibly conspiratorial because it is so unique, quirky. You know, some of us old-timers remember the stories of the of the Bermuda Triangle, where no no evidence was, but we haven't had stuff like that since the early seventies. Sure, sure. And now something, you know, now we have in the the internet age and the information electronic age. Uh, this this is ridiculous, and I, and I don't think you can take off the table that that something intentionally. Let, let's say that data was out there and, and received by somebody. That there was something done by our players to keep that information unavailable. I, I think that's still got to be a very poss- strong possibility because it happens all the other times. You know, I, I start believing these things when I go back and look at history. Once people start writing their memoirs and, it's, and you find out this kind of stuff has been done before. People have been directed to keep quiet on the path of rendition flights. Uh, soldiers are taken. Airplanes fly on the parts unknown and everybody stays quiet. Other governments don't rat on us on what's done. So there's a long precedent for being able to keep people quiet or something like that. Not saying that it happened. Uh, I'm just saying as the, as the time goes by, as debris is not available, I consider it more and more likely that it was an operation like that that happened and was intended to be forgotten. Sure, sure. Well, I I kind of look at it at a uh, kind of a different way, almost a more meta way, where I don't even care what happened to the plane or what it was about. What the way that it was handled in the press and the way that it changed the focus and affected the psyche of Americans, I think is the more fascinating part to me. Of it, it whether where the plane is is neither here nor there to me. But the idea that something can come along, so I don't know. Uh, almost, I don't want to say irrelevant. Every time lies are lost, it's very, very re- relevant. Yeah, but it it. It's not one of these stories that tickles the mind that, uh, you know, strikes at the heart of a Fox News listener who's scared of uh, those brown Arabs who are going to bomb and kill us all and turn us to Sharia law. It doesn't strike at the heart of Putin's the real bad guy. It, it was just this story that came out from this little country, you know, it's actually not little, but a country that, you know, probably a great percentage of Americans maybe never even heard of. Uh, well, they couldn't find it on a map for sure. Sure, exactly, and, and including this, most it, of the states, probably it, where you live, they couldn't find it on a map. <laughs> and this place, uh, 
so in that place, all of a sudden they're missing this plane. And I feel like it kind of captured the imagination of people and they started to just yeah. think. And then I think from there it did branch out into just like you said, this is one where everyone could look at it and say, what's the conspiracy? Clearly there's a conspiracy here. And then it was the, what the most fascinating thing about it to me was the kick, the, the capitalization on that by the news networks to kick it into overdrive on all of the fronts that it didn't really touch upon yet they focused on it nonstop for at least a month. I mean, I remember CNN, Fox news covering it in, in show after show after show, we would log on and Andrew and I would check the news and it was all about the same thing. So that's the thing I'm more kind of focused or that I want to kind of take away from it was that not only can they get the public to focus on something for 30, 60 days at nonstop with very little, I mean, they made they could have made and concocted this story up full cloth. Um, yeah. I don't think they did. I think the elements of a missing plane are in there, but they concocted almost everything that they ended up telling us. I would I would tend to believe, uh, and and they manufactured it up. They run it for six thirty sixty days forty five days whatever it was. And then they stopped. And just like you were saying about James Corbett says, and, and and you were also mentioning that all of a sudden, one day, some of these stories stop. And even though everyone was infatuated with it and it's nonstop news coverage, boom. Like your dog, when you throw a, a second tennis ball, they forget yeah. that quick and they uh, they run for the all other right. one. Um, and, and no one really has any uh, conclusion. And I feel like that that sort of stuff... Uh, and this and this one in particular was a great example of what's going on with all the propaganda in the American psyche right now. Where yeah. a lot of these things that uh, you know, for instance, let's let's just assume that there was propaganda going on twenty, thirty years ago. They would at least wrap it up for you. Okay, t- Ken- yeah. Kennedy was killed by Oswald and put a nice little bow on it. But now they don't even wrap it up for you, and it kind. Of, I think that sort of thing is going to kind of wear on the American psyche yeah. as, as we go forward. So I look at it. I don't know what's going on with the plane. I never did know what was going on with the yeah. plane, but I'm fascinated by the way that the American media covered it. Well, I'm sure at some point, ad revenue started to drop. When ratings start to drop, people get fatigued on a story. Ad revenue drops, and that's the biggest time for them to move on. Uh, whether they come to you know resolution or not, but um, what we may be witnessing is what is starting to form a pattern of a cycle, a media cycle, mm. where like a story like this may be really hot for a while. And, and there's some unique aspects to this. The fact that the unsolved part of it is somewhat unique. But it, it goes for so many months where it's hot. People are tuning in. They want to hear if there's any breakthrough, which are usually not. Okay, and then it decays. They disappear. We'll give it about three or four years. Suddenly the Discovery Channel... National Geographic, or start making documentaries. Whatever happened to that airplane? And they'll find it lucrative financially to rehash the information, repackage it. They'll reshow it. Everybody will watch it. Then you may have, a few years later, a feature movie comes out that is a dramatic dramatization of what happened on the airplane, sort of like Flight 93, and then they'll run that through, get out a little bit more information and money on it, and just keep going from there. So, so the news has, has essentially crossed into show business. Yeah, the line blurs, and what happens is a story just goes through this. Just it's a a cycle 
and age cycle where it goes from one set of media people, you know, the news people, and then it goes to the documentary people, then the dramatization people, and then it'll go to people like, remember 10 years ago and blah, 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 and it just gets handed off at these kind of things. But now the difference, this shows the difference, I think, in our society, because when the Kennedy assassination happened, you did have probably the bulk of society eventually move on because there was so much other stuff going on in the 60s on a large scale, and it culminated into the, the decade with the moon landings and, you know, other stuff. The Vietnam War obviously became a dominating thing, so they had so many distractions. But you had a generally, on average, I believe, a far more educated public at that time, and they could follow. Yeah, and let me just bring back to our early discussion about my writing. And you were saying something that's, that's very honest, and believe me, I hear it from people close to me about, you know, people have a hard enough time reading a 100-page book. Well, they're going to read all your, you know, lathering for that long. And, that, you know, it's a point. It's a, it's a real point. If my, point. if my goal was to be a popular writer <laughs> and to have me on the next bestseller list, I'm doing it all the wrong way. Because um, if that was what my motive for writing was, you're exactly right. People basically have just gotten far, far shorter attention spans. But because of that, we are stuck in a morass of being more and more deluded, more and more easily swayed, uh, more led by the nose. And until people break the cycle, uh, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And you're probably going to have It's like the old, there was a, was an Albert Knock that did the remnant about just trying to reach the remnant with an idea of what's right and what's the remnant catches on to something that in time it can impact the society. Um, the, the education levels, I believe, of people culminating up through, say, the, the early 60s was at a probably a peak, a zenith of our society. And when the, when the JFK assassination happened, you had a lot of people that went along to get along with the, with the war report. But then you had a whole lot of other people that were still willing to ask questions and were willing to read a lot of long books that methodically went through the Warren Commission report and these other things, and they continued to not buy it. They continued to be interested. They continued to read new books that came out over the decades of it. And you don't find that much in people today. You find some young people. You know, we had sort of the Alex Jones cycle has gone on for a while <laughs> where where he you know I give him credit he he popularized he made it more populist to ask questions about Bohemian Grove and and the Bilderbergs and other things that he raised some very very good points got people fascinated with knowing real answers on this but everything gets its fatigue eventually and then things start to taper off at times so I um, it, it's just like uh, I, I talked to an old friend of mine is a Christian gentleman, real smart guy, engineer, uh, had, a, had a great career, good family, and I had lost contact for a few decades with him. We were very, very close. And he started finding out this crazy radio show that I've been doing and all the crazy topics and, and you know, revisionist history and debunking a lot of things we understood. And he had a hard time understanding this. And in fact, uh, Andrew, we, we did a special show. He was called uh, Downing Thomas, I believe, on Future Quake. And he had a bunch of questions about these things that, that uh, your co-host alleged in his book. And so we had him on defending it, 
and him asking his honest questions, which was a really good exercise to do. And uh, what he confided in to me later, he says, you know, if these things are true that you're talking about because he's hit cold with them, he says, if they're true, then what we really need are courses in critical thinking. And that's where I was already led anyway, is that the, 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 the problem, the crisis we have today is not crises of food shortage or environmental crises or other kind of military things. It's a crisis of critical thinking. And it's never been sufficient. It's never been adequate. But it's never been worse than it is right now. Uh, we, we have such an anti-academic atmosphere. You know, when, when I went back to get my Ph.D. after 10 years, I was the only person in the Ph.D. program in, in the engineering field that was a, was a uh, U.S. citizen. That was not a foreign national. Um, well, that's a, everybody's know, looking for an easy way to things. And so by not having critical thinking, I, you know, I guess getting back to what we were talking about here, I think that this quick cycle of a story like this that disappears and everybody shrugs their shoulders is really, it's an indicative of a society that, that, that doesn't feel any responsibility or any interest in digging deeper. Except your listeners accepted, sure. you know, small numbers of other people. Well, as far as the school thing, you touched on kind of a sore subject here on the podcast. Uh, Andrew, and I, oh, no. Andrew, and I, Andrew and I both have uh, degrees which we no longer use or don't use at all yeah. from our day-to-day life. And I think that that sort of thing is uh, endemic in this country because of what the uh, education system has become with the you know the uh, the guaranteed student loans from the government and whatnot. It's created mm-hmm. kind of a factory system where they put the kids through the school you know, make them go through the ki- the kindergartens where they where they garden where they garden the kids and raise them all up to be the same anyway. But we have a personal responsibility too in our choice of, of subjects that we study, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's only as good as how well we plan ahead for what we're going to use. But you know, basically, they're hunting licenses are what they are, expensive ones, but hunting licenses. So you know, there's a lot of collective responsibility for what we do to leverage and use our education. I don't. I would agree with that. However, I would say that my father-in-law's degree from the college he went to is much more uh, valuable than uh, the degree that I would get if I went to the same school. I think that the uh, that the bar has lowered quite a bit in academic standards, even in the larger schools. I I agree. I don't have any dispute with that. That's certainly the case. In fact, it was lowered before I came along in the early eighties. When I entered college, it was lowered then, and it's far, far lower now because I have some relatives of another generation now who've gone through the similar programs, and I am amazed at how many corners are cut on requirements and things like that. So it's a continuous process. My father-in-law went to uh, an Ivy League school, and he paid a little less than $3,000 a year to go there uh, in the the 60s, and I I I would tend to think... Uh, now, That's would, a lot of money. I would argue, back then. argue against anyone that that his uh, education, even with inflation standards, would uh, still be more valuable than the mm-hmm. education that you would get today from the same school, which would probably cost you a hundred thousand uh, dollars, yeah, if if not more. So anyway, that's a it's an interesting subject that is kind of uh, a little bit. Well, it's tame. a racket. It's like everything. It's a racket that gets set up when you have government uh, uh, investment mm-hmm. 
and these kind of things, involvement. It's uh, our good friend Mitch, our economic expert on FutureQuake, mm-hmm. has often made this clear that just like when they provide in, in inducements to buy homes, the only net effect is it just raises the price of homes. Right. Same thing has happened in our education system. When the government invests money for people to go to school, supply and demand is still there. Right. And so if there's if there's flush money coming, they're going to raise the price. They're going to buy more ridiculous student centers and places for people to go throw frisbee in the quad and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, all that stuff goes on. The point that I was making back to well, we've gone quite away from uh, that flight, but um, <laughs> people now people now are age where they're they're so um, their senses are, are assaulted, and it's based upon their video game iPhone culture of having 10 things at once hit their senses and they can't focus anymore if things become one at a time. And so their, their sense of, of being able to train and focus and concentrate any length of time, whether it's on a textbook, whether it's on a news story, whether it's to stay focused on an issue of importance to concentrate, to accomplish something out of it and the discipline required is, it seems to be relatively shocked. And so, I'm not surprised that people will deal with cognitive dissonance these days and see something like this. It could be very, very alarming. And it's not just this. You know, the Ukraine story, the same thing applies. You know, what happened? How come it was an urgent crisis for us? And then we don't hear about it for forever until somebody decides to make it that and people shrug their shoulders and get back to their video games. That is the big overarching problem. That's the big lesson I see from all of this is that we have a society that has been so accustomed to bread and circuses, like the old Roman society, that all of these things have a commonality like that. It's basically, they're seen as entertainment shows, not news. And if there's something real juicy and salacious, people are watching it. And when that tempers down a little bit, and it requires maybe a little bit of deep investigation and searching, they yawn, they, they lose interest, and they go back to doing whatever. So to me, I feel like a more fundamental job I have to contribute to my society is to help promote the idea of taking things more seriously, taking personal responsibility, taking the discipline to to actually grab a subject and look at it intently to begin finding solutions. And until we develop those general tools of discipline, this other stuff is going to get worse and worse and worse. And there's going to be a handful of people behind closed doors that continue to run everything. And at least what we need to do is train some people to, to, to go knock on the doors and harass them a little bit, at least. Sure. Sure. So moving on from MH317 here in April, we have Boko Haram, the kidnap of 276 schoolgirls. Do you remember that story? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, the big story in, in April was that Dr. Future turned the 5-0. <laughs> that was probably the biggest thing in the news. Yeah. Uh, and but, uh, Andrew Hoffman's, I suddenly got old. Andrew Hoffman's uh, daughter turned uh, one, one years old, so, you know, that also was a big story. And they're probably connected. But, yeah, that Boko Haram, you know, again, what's the status on those girls? Do you have any idea what it is? I, I don't. I think last I heard, uh, the girls. Uh, I think Boko Haram gave up the girls. It was too hard to try and uh, 
All, all of them? Lug. All the remaining I think it, I think it became hard to lug 276 girls around the African jungle. I never believed a, a word of this story, but again, you're exactly yeah. right. The uh, the president's wife held up a sto- held up a piece of paper, hashtag bring back our girls. You know, it was this yeah. big thing. We all had to get involved, change your Twitter icon, retweet, hashtag bring back our girls. And again, within... A very short amount of time for that story. Uh, totally gone. Well, here's what I'd like to recommend. I would like, and I, I'll just take on my Christian friends. Okay, I'll give our non-Christian friends a break on this one. If they don't want to join in, they can't. I'd like to get our Christian leaders to talk in the Christian media and stuff about this kind of stuff, and it's because how bad Arab people are, people of other religion or whatever, and it's all just indicative of all of them, you know. And and they're telling me how terrible this is. Let's get these brave leaders to get together an expedition to over to Africa to go find these girls. You know, if they're that concerned, yeah. let's just get them together and just go <laughs> over there. They get enough of them together. They, 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 you know, they announce for those kind of, you know, they, they have enough tours for Israel, make huge money <laughs> gathering evangelicals. Well, there, how about just a tour there? We're going to go do something useful for once. <laughs> We're going to go try to rescue these girls. And, you know, if we get shot up and killed, well, you know, uh, uh, Elizabeth Elliot's uh, husband, Jim Elliot, you know, he was a martyr for his faith. We'll just be martyrs for our faith. But at least we're going to show we deserve to be Christian leaders. There you go. We're going to go there and rescue those people. You remind me of the uh, wealthy oceanographer who uh, was volunteering his services to uh, dive down and find Osama bin Laden's body where it was dumped. (laughs) Yeah, I never heard much about that guy after he came out and said he was interested in doing that. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd like to hear what his findings were. But you know what will happen? Those, you know, let, let's just you know we could play out my fantasy, and those guys would actually get the gut to do something like that. But put their money where their mouth is. They they get over there, and like you said, they would probably find out that things are a little bit more complicated than what we've been told in the little anecdotes, particularly in our Christian media. And that things are a little bit more complicated than what's going on. Uh, you know, hey, if they came out with the girls, great. You know? Yeah. Uh, because we do have some Christian leaders. Some of the ones that, that the mainstream Christian people don't like. But they'll still go over there and put their neck on the line and go maybe bring a hostage out here or there. You know? Sometimes they get hostage. I don't know if you remember Terry Waite. He, he, he worked for the... Uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he put his life at risk, and then here he was kidnapped, trying to get uh, hostages free. You know, I respect that. I do too. That guy just doesn't sit around talking and bemoaning and yelling bad about people. You know, if people believe that they have the power of Christ and that uh, you know they're here to accomplish something, well, then let's just get on with it. There let's not go. just mouth it. You know, if you got problem with Ahmadinejad. I don't see how these guys don't go over there and say, well, look, we're going to have a talk and we're going to give our grievances to him. You don't, you don't see any of that happen. You know, even if my government doesn't like it, I'm still going to do it anyway because I serve a higher calling. So I'm going to go over there and have an audience with him. Well, if your government so, doesn't like it, then your higher power doesn't like it, my friend. Oh, sorry. You're right. <laughs> that is your higher power. The yeah. state. The yeah. state. You sound like my buddy Bob who sent me a... Uh, a song written a few years ago, country music song, and I saw Jesus waving the stars and stripes. We actually played that on this uh, on this. Did show. you really? Yeah, we, oh, you all are people of wonderful taste. We did. We. I'm we, sure your listeners were 
tears were coming down their face when they heard it. <laughs> they, they sure were. If I could dig up that clip, I might even play it after the end of this show. Uh, well, I, I would be honored. I don't know much about this one, but I, I want to defer to you in case you do. I've heard good things about this guy, but this happened May 20th. Indies Narendra Modi swoops to victory in biggest election in history. Uh, I've heard good stuff about this guy. I don't necessarily know any, too much about him. Do you happen to know much about him? Well, since I've been out of doing the uh, Tomorrow's Tremors, uh, on Future Quake for the last three years, yeah, uh, I have lots of ignorance and things like that. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a blank slate on that. I have to tell you. Okay, we'll skip that as to not uh, to sh- to show my ignorance, and we'll move on. Chalk, chalk that on to. Dr. Future doesn't have a clue. Well, and we'll move up. Yet again. We'll move up into June. And on June 8th, the Islamic State takes Iraq's second city, Mosul. So there we go. The beginning of ISIS or ISIL uh, in the, uh, the that whole theater. Now, I, I do want to try and... And, and exercise some sort of brevity in talking about this because to be honest with you you and i could easily talk for the next two or three hours about this story and its impact on the world and the christian community uh just this story alone so uh let's try and and, and sum up what if we can what you've learned about not necessarily again not even the actual group of isis but more the public's reaction to it. I mean, it seems more and more, and I'll just give you my take real quick. This one, this story, more than any story that's been around in my lifetime, reminds me more of 1984 in We Were Always at War with, the, we're at war with yeah. East Asia. Yeah. We Were Always at War with East Asia. Uh, it really, really feels exactly like that. Um, that, you know... If you think way, way back to right after freedom to fascism, when uh, Aaron Russo met with Nick Rockefeller and supposedly Nick Rockefeller tells him, look, we're about to uh, uh, we're about to have this never ending war called a war on terrorism. And and, and we're going to take people's rights and we're going to do all these different things. And Aaron Russo turns to him and he says, how are you going to do it? How are you going to keep them in in uh, how are you going to keep the American people interested in this war and help them? you know, continue to think that it's real. And he says, we're going to use terrorism. And what it reminds me of here is that Al Qaeda has now run its course. And I think uh, Andrew Hoffman famously said midway through this year, Al Qaeda is like the MySpace of terrorist groups. Right. and, and, And ISIS is the new Facebook. You know, ISIS is here. They don't even have to keep a consistent name or a consistent group. Because Al Qaeda, I mean, they're not even bad enough anymore. Now we got ISIS. Uh, we were always at war with East Asia. We're at war with East Asia. We were always at war with East Asia. This one, to me, it's unreal. Um, it gets it rallies uh, so-called Christians in the United States, and I'll kind of defer some of that thought to you because I know you've done a lot of research into this. Uh, it made me sick to see uh, a lot of Christians say, you know, we got to get over there and do something. Uh, one thing we've kind of focused on on our show, which was a bit. Uh, heartbreaking as well is all of the uh, Iraqi war vets who come back here and uh, their view on it. Uh, we've talked about mm-hmm. Thomas Young several different times on this show, God rest his soul. Um, and, and the idea that these guys who went over to the Iraq war, who did lay down their life, who were fighting for, you know, the Lord only knows what uh, have now passed away. And again, 
there's roving marauders in the north of Iraq wandering around killing people as they go. Um, I will wrap up my th- my thoughts on all of that and turn the, the table over to you or turn the, uh, the microphone over to you uh, by pointing out the recent story. Did you happen to catch the plumber? Uh, I think it was Tom's Plumbing who... Uh, guy is out of texas okay he has an, uh, an f-250 uh, pickup truck and he goes to a dealership and trades this truck in and gets a different car because his uh his his business failed and uh, lo and behold a few months later pops up on terrorist uh websites and on different uh news sites there isis has got a gun mounted in the back of this pickup truck and right there on the side of the truck with the masked isis people themselves shooting from inside the truck um and right along the side of the truck it says tom's plumbing (laughs) austin texas or wherever it's from so i'll wrap it up by pointing out that uh, even our vehicles that are being traded in are somehow getting infiltrated are somehow being commandeered and ended up over there on the uh on the bad guy's side which uh Kind of furthers my idea that uh, you know this is uh, this is uh, very similar. That is to- an awesome. That is an awesome story. I, you need to email me a link to that. I absolutely because will. yeah, there there there's some network that got that, and I'm sure people would say it's the Muslim Brotherhood here that uh, runs the car dealerships that send it over. Yeah. You know, there was another there was another car dealer that they said was a major terrorist here. Not long ago, and and I even I think I maybe mentioned it in my writing, and I've sort of forgotten it. You know, as far as ISIS goes, by the way, your analogies that both of you all have, and I'm not surprised at all at this, are excellent at trying to find some kind of analogy that people put in context. Um, what we see going on, you know, with with, with the MySpace and things. You know, another one that it reminds me of is that uh, you know, being a well-educated intellectual person, I was a you know a very interested person in professional wrestling when I was young. Uh, so that sort of goes together. And in my youth, in my uh, wonderful redneck youth, uh, we watched uh, big-time professional wrestling in the days when the the, beer, the bellies are really big, you know, and the guys are really gross-looking. And what would happen is you'd have these masked guys come through into the market, like we saw the wrestling out of Memphis that actually came up to Louisville. And you'd see a guy, and they'd make hay for a while, and then they would run afoul of the good guy, and they'd get unmasked. Or they would lose a loser-leave-town match. <laughs> and so then they'd get booted out of town, you know. They just lost their pizzazz. They weren't going to draw in a crowd anymore. And months later, all of a sudden, there'd be some new masked man show up. And he would, you know, wrestle and really create a hay. And then people would start whispering, you know, that guy looks familiar, even with a mask. You know, it looks like maybe that tattoo on his arm I've seen before or something else. And then eventually they would get unmasked in the ring and voila, it was the guy that was there the last time. And they would disappear and then sometime later a guy would show up again. So I think that's, we're all saying the same thing. Is that we're just seeing reboots 2.0, 3.0. And when, when the society gets a fatigue, and then, you know, it's not even necessarily that they're not buying it with Al-Qaeda. It's just that they're just become ambivalent toward it. Because we all know if they were really as dangerous as they told us, they would have all poisoned our food supply, our water supply, et cetera. It's not like it's that hard a thing to do. You know, even even if they did it, you know, in an inept fashion, 
they could still create enough havoc anyway, if, if it's what we were told. And so when I was writing uh, the conclusion of my second volume, uh, and this has been some time ago, this would have been in late 2013, I was writing about this group called ISIS that was being trained by the Turks and the Americans and the Israelis and the Saudis together in eastern Turkey and in Jordan, in Jordan. to go and, and knock off uh, Assad in yeah. Syria. And so people act like this is the first they've ever heard of them. Hmm. Well, these guys had pretty good training. They, they had almost as good a training as a Taliban had when in they the were 80s. flown over to Nebraska, to the University of Nebraska, and our Green Berets taught them how to make roadside bombs. And we, we uh, our government made all of this uh, uh, hateful, anti, you know, jihadist, anti-Westerner literature for the madrasas that were printed by our government. So uh, ISIS, uh, it, you know, the, the big question, just to try to, you know, wrap it up, I don't know what you were asking to do. Uh, the people, thing I ask people when they get all spooled up at church or something about it, I just say, isn't the big question who is ISIS working for? <laughs> no, don't pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Behind, behind the curtain, because whoever's getting them their money or anything, the kingpin should be who we're interested in, not the junkie on the street or the, the corner hoodlum. But let's find out who's bankrolling it. That's going to answer a lot more questions. Or who's given them their means of transportation. And this is from CBS News. Texas plumber's truck on London front line in, or excuse me, on front line in Syria. A pickup truck once owned by a plumbing company in Texas has somehow found its way to the front lines of the Syrian civil war and been converted into an anti-aircraft weapon for Islamic militants. A photo posted to Twitter on Monday by the Ansar al-Din Front, an Islamic extremist brigade, because uh, they're really good at social media, these new Islamic brigades, mm -hmm. right. uh, seemingly comprised largely of Chechnyan fighters, shows the F-250 with a militant standing in the bed firing the anti-aircraft gun. Mm -hmm. Speaking to CBS News Tuesday morning, a representative of the plumbing company in Texas City said the vehicle was sold to the Auto Nation dealership in Houston in October 2013. That's the last they knew of it. The company has been besieged by phone calls, including threats since the photo appeared online, clearly showing that the company's name and phone number. CBS News is not clearly is, is not identifying the company due to the nature of some of the attention it has received. They have employed an, inter an attorney to intend to pursue legal action to force Twitter to remove the photo from the internet. I love when somebody wants to remove a photo from the internet. It's actually one of my favorite things. Uh, reached by CBS News Tuesday morning, a person identifying himself as an Auto Nation manager would not comment on the sale of the or the history of the vehicle in question, saying, we can't give information like that over the phone before he hung up. The representative of the, of the plumbing company in Texas City said they would most definitely be removing their logo from all vehicles sold in the future. Ansar al-Din Front has been fighting in the complicated Syria war, primarily in Aleppo, Syria's largest city and formerly the economic powerhouse of the nation. It has been the scene of some of the most vicious fighting between the groups of al-Assad's uh, forces and um, and myriad rebel groups uh, that are trying to mm -hmm. topple him, but it's largely controlled by ISIS. Well, I think I think in the spirit of the Patriot Act, I think the only choice we have is to preemptively uh, interrogate um, all plumbers that we have <laughs> as potential terrorists. Is that story? I think that's the only the only prudent thing to do. 
And, um, uh, you know, I, and the other thing I suspect, and this would be like what I would hear in the anti-Sharia crowd, is that Auto Nation is probably O-T-T-O, Auto Nation. Yeah. I.e. the auto, the Ottomans that are coming back. Muslim Brotherhood. And they're, they're using our, our car dealerships mm-hmm. as a front yeah. uh, to be able to provide quality transportation. I work at a car uh, dealership, and uh, you know I've seen some. Oh no! Yep, I've seen some things you, going you on. You too. I'm I'm in that I'm in that group too. So I'm gonna jump up, jump forward a month and all the way up into July, and this one I will defer totally to you. I barely. I, hey, what I, does what does Kilkenny mean in Arabic? That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, it's an Irish Catholic name, but in Arabic, I mean it. You know, you don't want to know, buddy. You don't want to. Tim know. means jihad. I know that <laughs> it does. Um, July eighth, Israel launches Operation Protective Edge. I love the names we come up with for our operations, but this is not our operation. This is Israel's Operation Protective Edge against Gaza. Your thoughts? Well, you know, this is a. Ba- I just wrote Judaism and its holy wars, so there's going to be a lot of clothes being rent after they read this, and so I'm, I'm not in the best frame of mind to answer this. But I do have a general question on these kind of actions. Okay. I think we I think we spent about seven hundred million dollars. I last remember checking for an Iron Dome system. Uh huh. Yes. 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 This sort of the ultimate patriot act. And, and our goal, obviously, is to be an honest broker and just maintain the peace. And if maybe just like the Star Wars program and small, create an environment where war is not practical. You know, and like Reagan said, he said, I'll, once I get it done, I'll just give it to the Russians, too. And both have it, war will be over. Now, we have a system on a small scale like this that supposedly knocks stuff down. So wouldn't it make sense for an honest broker to give an iron dome to both sides? Hmm. So both sides could be protected, but I don't think that's quite how it worked out. The last I checked, I believe one side has an iron dome, whereas they're they're free at large to lob whatever they want in mass over to the other side. So I don't know if that necessarily promotes peace and tranquility to do that. Hey, we uh, we're here to represent and to uh, to guard our allies, and more importantly. To sell them weapons. We're here to also make money off of death. Well, and it helps them because then they can make money when they sell it to China. Perfect. Uh, yeah, which but, is what their their track record has been with any kind of advanced technology and weaponry we have, is to sell it to the Chinese, and then we face on the battlefield our drone technology, a whole host of other things that, that uh, we have provided. So, yeah. On, Friends like that who needs enemies. I couldn't agree more. And this one goes back to our first story, which was back in uh, February, the Ukraine story. But uh, July 17th, Ukraine reared its ugly head again, at least in the public perception. I don't think it ever actually quieted down, but actually in the public sphere here in the United States, Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 down in Ukraine. This was another great example of uh, you have to look at who benefited. Who benefited mm-hmm. from this flight going down? Right. And the one person who did not benefit in any way from this flight going down was Vladimir Putin. Clearly the person at fault for this. Mm-hmm. Clearly the motivation was... Probably also the occupants of the airplane would be on that list too. <laughs> not benefiting. <laughs> Agreed 100%. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on this one? I mean, this was immediately blamed on Russian government, but all aspects of this from the minute it came out were that... These supposed uh, 
Ukrainian rebels who were, you know, who want to quickly join NATO and start their own central bank that would uh, be in debt to the World Bank are the uh, some of the militants that are involved here. Uh, I don't. I mean, well, yeah. To me, it was a case from what I could follow. And if you dug deep into the internet, and you probably did a much better job than I, you can go deeper and deeper and deeper and find out. Well, here's something. People found a picture of this. They found a picture of that. They do. Um, to, to me, my head starts to turn after a while, and I realize there's no way I can sort out the propaganda on one side or the other on this, but I'm just immediately suspicious that something was done engineered to smear somebody else. Hmm. And the, one of the only shoot-downs of a commercial airliner that I know exactly for sure who did it was when the Americans shot down the Iranian jetliner. And it was clearly understood that, that we did it, and they were clearly on the on the screen, and all of the other ships, Navy ships, knew that it was an Iranian jetliner, and one guy decided to hit the button. So, you know, that, and, and of course, what did they do about that? There was a case where it was clear where, where a nation took the one that they were belligerent against and actually shot down a commercial jetliner full of people, and they didn't do a dead blame thing. Sure. So where where do we have any kind of uh, higher ground to say something needs to be resolved in something like this? Um, you know, I would like to see justice for the occupants that were on board. They're the ones who are the, who are the real victims of all this. Uh, I don't know what came into their mind, assuming that they had control of their airplane, okay? I mean, we always have to ask that question in the, in the electronic age uh, that it's an assumption, but assuming they did, who was such an idiot to fly over that space hmm. if that was the case? And I, you know, there's, there's probably a reason. I don't know what it is, but um, it's it's an absolute tragedy, and I don't know how to sort it out. I do know on a bigger picture that what's going on there is near impossible to sort out, and that's why it's better just to keep your knickers out of it. You know, or to, a lot or to of send stuff. your son over there to head up the natural gas uh, department uh, or company in the area. I mean, if you and, if and you have the the resources to do that, that, that might be people great. need to scream. People need to scream like a banshee about that kind of stuff. And even if you feel powerless to do anything, is to make sure everybody knows and hears. And every time Biden speaks, somebody needs to hold up a sign. Yeah. And God bless those people like Code Peak who find creative ways to get in the camera when they have the congressional speeches. Yep. And, you know, I don't know other people. I'm, I'm sure on Fox News they just have a cow with those folks. But, you know, God bless them for caring enough about whatever they believe, whether it's what I believe or not. But they get in there and they make themselves seen and they're willing to take the handcuffs and march off because they don't have a voice otherwise to do what they're doing. And so, you know, that stuff needs to follow him around. You know, he's talking about maybe running for, for president, um, you know, against the juggernaut, uh, Clinton. And, uh, that's the best way is just hang in like an albatross around his neck. And, uh, people have a voice to speak up on it. But you know, all this reflects back to me, to very similar, it's still some different situation, but the situation we had in Georgia, if you went, remember, number of years ago in Georgia mm-hmm. where the similar crisis was going on with rebels and a challenge in the country. And then you had South Ossetia that was trying to get away. August 8th, 2008. 2000, okay. Well, all this was going on. And in the process, a little bit of time I spent studying this. And, you know, Sarah Palin wanted us to go to war with Russia 
over it and to start like the kind of war that, uh, um, who was it, uh, JFK and um, who was his down the other side um, uh, at uh, Post Dollars? Yeah, Khrushchev. Yeah, those two guys had enough sense, particularly Khrushchev, to back away. Well, Sarah Palin didn't. She wanted us to go to war with Russia over that in Georgia. And, you know, we sent our ships there past the Armada of Russian ships there in the, in the port. By recollection, that's what I remember. But but I did not know that the president of Georgia was an, was an Israeli citizen, if I remember correctly. Shali Kashkili hmm. was an Israeli citizen, and that he had a bunch of Israeli citizens on his cabinet. And, in fact, according to Debka, uh, you know, which is the real militant Israeli website, they had Israeli army figures stationed in Georgia. They also were training the army for Georgia. And the reason why Debka said that they were doing it was that they were running an alternative pipeline through Georgia, out, you know, up through the general Afghanistan, Turkmenistan area, but, but an alternative pipeline to the one from Turkey that was running through Georgia that the Israelis were overseeing. And so the Israelis were ultimately the ones that were admitting that they were creating this whole tension between the Russians and the others, but being fought between the Georgians and them. But the one thing I always remember is the video of Shali Kashvili talking on the phone and eating his tie. That was the thing I enjoyed the most, where he was taking his tie in his mouth and eating it. I don't know if that rings a bell with you. No, it doesn't. Well, that, that's, that's, I'm sure that's uh, probably somewhere on YouTube. But uh, but anyway, I just see shadows of that, uh, what we see in this new thing in, in Ukraine, uh, where you've got you know murky third parties. You know, A lot of people have pointed out the CIA and the Western Europeans, and particularly their banks, that were part of this revolution that occurred within uh, the Ukraine, within their government, when they overthrew the current government. And so it's like, how many, how far back do you want to peel the onion to who's first, chicken or egg? Gladio B. But the whole, the whole, yeah, exactly, exactly right. It's a Gladio-type operation. So it's also rotten to the core that I think all, all you can do, you know, if I were president, and it could happen, I, I would just say, just stay out of the mess. Just stay, just stay away from it. Of course, what they'd probably do is kidnap some American soldiers or civilians and try to force you, bait you into a conflict. That's the way they, they do this kind of stuff. You know, you won't play ball. We'll bring you to it. You're like Ron Paul. I agree with you on everything except your foreign policy. So uh, moving on forward to August 8th, Ebola declared an international health emergency. Of course, I was totally joking there. I agree with Ron Paul's yes. foreign policy. I think that anyone who says they agree with everything Ron Paul says, except his foreign policy, uh, clearly has missed the point. But anyway, August. Well, what about what about my foreign policy of the Bennett administration? Of the Bennett, without well, you wouldn't be going over there, which is the same thing that you would be doing, right? Right. right. And yeah. for your support, I would get you a lucrative cabinet position. I'm interested. I'm very, very interested. I would pay for your endorsement. <laughs> I'll do it for free. August 8th, okay. Ebola declared an international health emergency. Now, you happen to be a scientist, at least an engineer, uh, and I believe a, a scientist of sorts. Uh, this Ebola thing... Which means I'm automatically an Ebola expert. That's, that's right. right. Well, this Ebola thing, I mean, from what I can tell, 
it's not as easy to transmit as we are were led to believe. And I believe this is another example of fear porn. Uh, where yeah. they got people to actually be scared. And this one, uh, of all the things we've talked about so far and what we'll finish up with in the rest of this episode, this one thing of all the things I think actually struck the most fear in people. I had my wife mm-hmm. I had my wife come to me and say, hey, what's going on with this? I had people at work come to me and say, hey, what do you think about this? I've had people at work who said they were taking a survey to see if they should be worried. Because if you turned on the news when this was in full uh, steam, it was scary. And mm-hmm. uh, someone that I don't love, uh, I think sometimes his news source is, is good, uh, Andrew... And I go back and forth. He he jokes around with me. I joke around with him about uh, Alex Jones. But Alex Jones even came out and said, Ebola is real. You know, in that uh, we got to get our whatever, you know, vitamins he was selling that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was a good mm-hmm. example, too, of... Of the uh, what I the one thing I hate about the alternative media really coming and shining through, and that is the fear porn aspect. I mean, it just takes the yeah. the regular media and it just turns it up three notches. Like it's worse than they're even saying. They're trying to keep it calm. It's ripping across the country now. Ebola is everywhere, and mm-hmm. I, it's shades of the swine flu. It's shades of you know the same stuff we've done before. Uh, so. Yeah. I'm, well, that, you're you're sophisticated enough from having watched this stuff over years, you and Andrew. Mm-hmm. That what you find is is you find you know people hear talk about talking points mm-hmm. with pundits where where everything is framed using the identical words and language on every talk show politically. You find any story like this becomes at certain talking points throughout all of our different media outlets, and I'm sad to say. Ones that used to look really independent, let's say like the Drudge Report, it's gotten to be just another establishment media thing. You know, I think Alex Jones struggles with a lot. Mostly it's because of the conservative direction that both are going, probably because there's more listeners and viewers, just like why Christian radio or why conservative radio generally is supported more financially because there's just more people that are more diehard on that end. But, um, they're going that direction, but you'll find the words you use to explain this stuff. You can go on the internet and just start tracking every one of these outlets saying the same thing. Now, you could say, well, hey, they're just taking the same press releases and all quoting from all of them. But if it, when you see it done that way and you start saying, here's the template on how the public is conditioned on a topic, you know, the study that I have done when I began the beginning of my volume two of my writing uh, went into the public relations development, the kind of stuff that Andrew's talked about sure. in some talks he's given years ago. And I went a little bit deeper into some of those books by, by Ivy Lee and Edward Bernays and, and how the news became basically just a recitation of PR releases sent by PR firms. So they could immediately frame the debate on any topic, including totally inventing experts that were really paid by some corporate person to tell us what a quote expert thought on these things. Ebola is a classic case of what could be vulnerable to that kind of treatment. Absolutely. But the thing that we see of all this, you could almost, if one were of a conspiratorial mind, and I'm sure none of your audience are, (laughs) but let's just say they were. One thing we've seen of all these things we've just talked about is that it's possible 
that all these different things are sent up as trial balloons. And even Alex Jones has pointed that out, and I give him kudos for this, is that these things are, can be sent up, and it's not necessarily that they're necessarily instigated, the event. It could be a core event that's just somewhat legitimate, but the way they treat it and the way they assess how much it jars, motivates the public, uh, stirs them and gets their attention enough that they can be directed in a certain direction of response. <laughs> all this kind of stuff is me- it's all measured. Well, that's a byproduct. That's a near-term pragmatic byproduct, financially. But, but let's say even government officials that want to see what really stirs the pot, because po- politicians do this, and they'll do polling and things on certain topics, frame it a certain way, to see what really gets under people's skins enough to shake them out of their lethargy and to actually make a difference on whose lever they pull or other actions they'll so, take in response. So and so me, they run these trial balloons up. Let me, they let basically me. contest and see what really grips people. And like you said, Ebola is one that sort of pegs the meter more with let, people. Let me, let me just jump in just for a second. And it was actually mm-hmm. floated on this show and on a few other shows, including the No Agenda podcast, that during the Ebola epidemic, or the or excuse me, it's not an Ebola epidemic. During this story that they purported to be an epidemic, yeah, and, and began right. to, to uh, scare the media with it, um, it was um, hypothesized that Republican interests were doing this to make Obamacare and the American health care system look like a failure. So that mm-hmm. several different Republican uh, people who are running for Congress in the upcoming midterm elections, which is one of the stories that uh, also happened this year, they took back Congress or whatnot. They were using this as an example of Obamacare and the American health care system not working. Later, some of these same people who were running for office used the talking points. They didn't even know what to do in Dallas. This health care system needs a new reform. Elect me and I'll do this. So just to add to your point there to say that, you know, it is quite possible that sometimes they're using it just for purely political means. You know, that it is such a cynical view that something as trivial as a handful of congressmen would traumatize the entire public to be able to get a handful of congressmen elected. Um, the sad thing is that that's probably completely plausible. Even though that sounds like, how could somebody be so callous that they'd be willing to traumatize the public for a handful of these offices? We live in a day and age when that's not out of the realm of possibility, at least. And, you know, you look at Joe McCarthy and the Red Scare. You know, that was one man who was an opportunist and ruined how many people and how many different industries. Uh, for, for the same reason, but by scaring people to death and frightening, you know, even people today, he could have people that would be a similar mind to us that would swear that everything he did was, was on the up and up. But, um, you know, that's not a new thing to do that. But what's the lesson to learn from this? The lesson is to learn when you hear this stuff that's horrifying people is, is like you said, who wins? Who benefits from doing this? And, and you basically have to keep an open mind. And have a wide swath of possibilities on who may be behind it. It may be more than one. There may be an alliance of people who have common interest in perpetuating something to stay on page one. And, you know, I wish I could have learned that in the past. You know, I've had my panic in the past. You know, Y2K, they wanted to be prudent, you know, have some water and food on hand in case. 
Nobody knows what's going on. And, you know, even our own government says for natural disasters, it's smart to have, have uh, you know, a couple weeks provisions. Stuff happens, you know, Katrina's, that kind of thing. Y'all are, you know, you're in the ring of fire where you are. So it's probably a good idea to have some stuff like that. But, but, but when it carries over into the sky is falling, and the sad thing is, is those of us of a Christian evangelical bent that can get into apocalypticism a lot, um, they can feed on that in another way to say, well, the end is here. And we start playing into this kind of stuff and losing our head in the process. Absolutely. And so Absolutely. that's why it's a good, that's why it's a good exercise on your show. And people who are somewhat naive people and don't keep up with stuff, if they just drop in on your show or corporate report or things, and they hear this and they're thinking, boy, these guys are really cynical, and gee, they're they're real downers, and how could they think this about these people? But one, if they're around long enough, they'd start to understand that there's a method to the madness, and there's some reasonableness in it. But also it would stop them from panicking so much because they see it been there, done that. Yeah kind of atmosphere when you see these stories come along it's not that dark when you start to think that everything's fake <laughs> then you start to re- yeah, you start yeah. to realize that it's it's not that dark that's right and the emperor has no clothes and uh there's a lot of smoke and mirrors that goes on and that's why learning history you know particularly unpopular history books you learn them you you go shazam the same stuff happened 50 years ago and people fell for it the same way uh, and in fact, in, in many cases, people are much more gullible today than they ever were. You know, I, I gave you my diatribe about education today. But uh, if you go back and you watch the films, I have noticed the films of about, say, 57 to 62, 63, maybe even all the way up to Dr. Strange Love. Black and white, good crisp black and white, are some of the most intelligent films on average just intellectually engaging, challenging films. And then things started to de- decay. And I think it's a sign because, you know, they, they, these people know their public. They know who they're responding to. And, and, and they were engaged with the people who were generally, I think, more on the ball, even though they were, they were spellbound by the Cold War. The Cold War was a portal for them to swallow anything. And as we found out later was that, well, you know, there's a side that's got nukes and they've got other capability and space program. They were largely oversold. And the team, the, the team D one report oversold the Soviet capability and loyal Americans got behind it. And when the wall came down, we found out most of the smoke and mirrors to support the defense contractors. Now we have Jerry Boykin and his crew writing the team B two report not recognizing the irony of naming it after the same thing that has imputed the same juggernaut capabilities to the Islamic world. <laughs> and so the question is, when will we ever learn uh, that when people have an agenda? Now, Tim Kilkenny doesn't fall for it. Andrew Hoffman does it. Probably most of your listeners, Corbett people don't. Uh, did we come to the point that we have a sacred task to be pest? And to throw in our two cents, even when it's not wanted, in our local church settings, around the dinner table, with family members. Um, if you care enough to be your brother's keeper, you have to care enough not to be quiet. Amen. Amen. Speaking of which, moving on, August 9th, Ferguson Riots. 
This was an interesting, interesting story. Um, I tend to think that this is a flare-up of not just Ferguson, but this sort of uh, tension exists all across the country. Uh, I played a great clip from uh, a rapper named Killer Mike uh, who spoke about this, who said that he didn't care about the black-white issue involved in Ferguson. But as a black man, he cared more about the civil rights, civilians versus police issues. I think that these sort of thoughts are brewing I think that resentment for the police department is growing all the way across the country on many different levels. And it's not bound to races, but it's only bound to civilians versus police. But in order to uh, kind of uh, divide and conquer, this has become, and they have floated it as a racial issue, something that always gets people chattering, talking, and uh, turning against each other. Uh, I'll defer to you. We only have a few more. I know we're running out of time. So I had one of my favorite relatives during Christmas holidays the last few days who, who I almost always agree with and probably got me to loosen up a little bit more to the liberal side of things. He, he sort of read me the riot act because I had any kind of questions about law enforcement and some of their more extreme acts. <laughs> and this is a gentleman who I'm thinking and probably the Hannity show and local talk radio and stuff sure. probably had a hand in framing his debate on some of these issues. Sure. But, but I'll cut, I'll cut to the chase of my big concern about Ferguson, about what I observed. You know, we can concede that this young man who lost his life tragically was a troubled young man. He had just done what would be considered a violent act or a threat of violence in a store. He robbed. And the way he was acting in a way that was going to ultimately lead to problems. And, and ultimately, we live in a society where the buck stops with ourselves as individuals. Uh, although you could also say that what happened to his parents to lead to a man, a young man who could go up and just steal stuff out of a store, you know, badmouth police and do other stuff like that. You know, parents have a responsibility. Their clergy people do. Other people, no, nobody bears total responsibility, but they've had a contributory role. This young man ultimately bears it. I don't know what happened since we didn't have cameras where the policing was, and, and the, the cameras should be on policemen for everybody's interest. But... The, the thing that really disturbed me about this, even if you try to give the support to the police when they, when a judgment calls, you know, you, you, you err on their side when it's a tough call and you don't have the data. Um, the first thing is when I watched the riots that happened later, when the announcement of no indictment happened, I watched on TV late at night, and they had the reporters out there recovering it. There were seas of policemen in full riot gear. Full military gear, full military vehicles. They had all this intense right gear, but they were all cloistered around the police station. And they told the reporters they were there to protect the chief of police. So the, this government official, paid official, was that really purpose that all these guys were here, dressed out to the nines in, in the gear. Meanwhile, these other people on the outside, and they're, you know, they're getting uh, testy, as, as everybody expected. And then they, they showed the camera back to the store where the guy originally, that young man, evidently stole the cigars. 
And there were policemen there. According to reports, there were policemen there in front of it because they knew that they, this crew would come by. And they just, when the crowd came, and the we don't even know who the, the loot, initial looters are. Okay. We, were they out of town? Were they people planted in there like they had for the, you know, the World Trade Organization riots where you actually had police plants doing it? Exactly. So nobody knows, but we do know that the policemen got in their vehicle and drove away and left that store to be looted. Meanwhile, they go back to, to, to the police station. All of these undeployed policemen are just mulling around laughing, smoking cigarettes, having a good time, not doing a thing, other than maybe their forward edge is moving the line to push people to where the other stores are to be looted. But they're not doing anything. And I'm thinking... These guys are paid good money by their citizens to protect lives and property. And there, there, there's, there's a thousand times the number of policemen ever in the city present there at one time, and not any of them are out there protecting the property of the innocent people of Ferguson who actually pay as taxpayers their salaries. Well, I think the thing that yeah. you, you learned here in this in this scenario is that a... Uh... A police life is more important than a civilian life, and a, and a chief of police's life is way more important than a civilian's. Exactly, property, which is exactly. the same lesson we learn time after time when we turn on the TV and look overseas that an American life is worth right. way more than an Iraqi child's life. In fact, they won't even carry the story unless it's American. But I see it even more cynically than that, and I I didn't go in watching that to look for a cynical edge. I, I was trying to give them benefit of the doubt because of this troubled campaign. But the thing was, I think what they were really trying to do, given the laughing and joking going on behind the lines while they pulled back and let this stuff burn without intervening, was that they wanted the looters to loot on camera and to burn, oh. and they didn't want to do a thing because they wanted to show this is what this town is like. This is what these people are like. See these savages? See the way these savages are? The cameras are here to record this. We want you to see. You know, we could stop it. We've got more than enough power to stop it. Sure. But we want you to see burn, baby, burn. So that we, yeah. we, we, we want this to disparage who these people are and how dare you support these savages. Because mm -hmm. you could see this could come to your town if it wasn't for us in the, in the blue line. You know, and then I started, well, I, maybe I need to think about this a little bit more. And I started hearing the um, the the, the uh, attorney for the family, and you know he wasn't the best spoken guy. I'm, I'm assuming he probably wasn't paid very much to represent them, uh, not like the well-paid government guys. But um, he started making an argument and, and, and saying basically, you know, you've got a you've got an attorney there, prosecuting attorney for this for the city who is by very nature very, very closely attached to the local police. They're, they're, they actually work as a team together to go prosecute other criminals. So the, the policemen actually come as his witnesses. He helps him win his cases. They work together to develop the cases and arguments. So now we have a system with a grand jury to where they're being asked, he's being asked to bust his own partners. Exactly. That's a great point. And, and you actually... And the only... Yeah, the only day... Yeah. 
I was going to say, you hit directly on something that we spoke about two or three weeks ago when these indictments came out. There's like a, a less than one point one percent one half of one percent chance that a policeman will be indicted in this country. Yeah, just indicted. Where is that real data? That's is that real data. data. He actu- no, he actually did. Yeah, it's something we came across, and Andrew actually backed it up with data. I asked the exact same question. Yeah, and he read yeah. an article that said if you are a policeman, you have less than a one half of one percent chance of being indicted. However, if you are an everyday American citizen, almost one hundred percent, because you're asking yeah. the prosecuting attorney to prosecute his friend, and in which case, what ends up happening is what Andrew pointed out a couple weeks ago when he read the story. He becomes a defense attorney. I have news for you. If the if the prosecuting attorney starts to defend the person he's prosecuting, he's not going to indict. They're not going to indict. Probably not going. Probably not going to prosecute. And in effect, the grand jury's hands are tied, as I understand it, yeah. to only consider data that the prosecuting attorney brings before him. Exactly. So whether they choose to bring, and it's not just the data, but how the data is presented, what what credibility they give to the data, what conclusions an expert would say the data would tell you. And and that's not to say that something wasn't overwhelming in the case of Ferguson, but they don't they don't seem to understand that the message to the community is we we don't want attorneys for, for the victim to be able to have their day in court. We don't want them to have a chance to raise a specter of any dirty laundry mm-hmm. we have. Right. E- even though even though, you know, they may give it to us on a tie, tough call, but they support us, we don't even just want that even brought up. And so, obviously, the more, more terrible case was the one that we see in New York City with, with the man selling cigarettes that they oh, decide yeah. to jump him from behind. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Grand jury, mm-hmm. uh, no, no attorney representing the victim, and the same thing comes down. And, and, and this is the bigger picture where I suddenly saw a relationship, because I watched the talking heads for all of the police and the other kind of people that came in. Stassi, and not only Stassi defending the police regardless of the data, but being totally incensed and offended that the public would even ask these questions. They considered it a total betrayal that the public would even have an inquiry about this. And simultaneous with this, we saw the latest terror reports released by the government yeah. <laughs> that talk about the CIA results of the uh, you know, all these things, these men forgotten in the dark for weeks at a time or chained next to the floor and dying and, and, and rectal shots of hummus and pine nuts and stuff. And you heard the identical arguments from Cheney yeah. to all the former CIA and SA directors. They were incensed, incensed that someone would challenge That's right. their, their role as the caretaker of society <laughs> and would second guess their questions. Because it's a hard job, just like the policeman on the street. And sometimes you just got to bully people and you got to throw 20 guys on top of a guy. And you can't necessarily have a trial. You can't, you know, put a guy before a court and have him decide. So you got to take matters in your hands. And the identical arguments and the same arrogant attitude was exhibited by both groups. Absolutely. And this, this is a bigger picture of what I'm sort of crystallizing. And this is going to be an oversimplification. Oh, we're but, ready but to for try it. to to sort of see it condensed down into the ultimate, these things are indicative of what I see when I think of George Orwell. When they ask him what he predicted for the future, and as you know, he said, "Picture a boot stepping on a face forever." And 
I, I have come to the belief that basically what we have in life and these issues is that we have boots and faces. And people can have a proclivity to align themselves to the boot or to the face. And I hate to say that most of my, I'm not saying all, but most of my evangelical friends that I know feel much more comfortable aligning themselves with the boot. And my, to my be good honest friend, with you, though, I, I, I just, just, just simplifying your analogy all the way down to its most simplest form. Yeah. Of course, it would be more comfortable to be the boot. Well, then the question is: Is that what we're left here to be comfortable? But the uh, my you know good friend Robert Hyde, whom you know, uh, frequent guest on our show, he said it in a different way, and I'm paraphrasing a long time ago, many years ago, that that American evangelicals have something like this: they have an affinity for authoritarian power structures. <laughs> It's the same principle. Basically, it, whether it's a military, CIA, police, whatever, they any kind of authoritarian force that can use the force and power to coerce others, particularly to protect the status quo, which is really sort of what conservatism is all about, conserving the status quo arrangement of the establishment, who's in power, who has economic power, political power, etc. So conserving that arrangement, you know, and then you can dress it up with spiritual, religious justification for it. But that's basically what they gravitate toward. And if you listen to Christian radio, you listen to media, other kind of stuff, you know, that's why that flag gets waved so much. That's why we have like guys here jumping down, repelling from the ceiling in churches on the 4th of July, and big churches here and things like this, is that that's what really gets the blood flowing. And, you know, we inherited that from our Jewish forebears. That's why they, they're much more interested in in Hanukkah and the Maccabees whipping the Greeks' butt, or Esther, where they massacred 57,000 people and they celebrate with a joyous celebration for the women and children that they kill, and they don't get as interested in the Day of Atonement, which is a solemn time of humility. When when we when we ask, you know, uh, before God, humble reverence, that he'd be merciful to our souls, we'd rather like him when we kick the butts of other people. Well, true to your, re- true to your record, you don't have anything, you, you keep something that'll offend everybody, right? Well, did I check off the box for everybody? You're checking off quite a few boxes today. I haven't so, mentioned the Moonies this, this time, but we'll I'll get there next time. Uh, Robin Williams, I, I don't even know what to say. I mean, that's kind of a, a weird thing where he commits suicide. I'd be interested in the pharmacia that was involved there. Uh, the next one, James Foley beheaded by Islamic State of Iraq in the Levant. I'll just quickly gloss over that one and say... I found that one to be very reminiscent of instead of George Orwell's, we were always at war with East Asia. But if you remember, there was a part in that book where he talked about uh, the bombs that would drop, the missiles that would drop. And he said that they would drop just every now and then right in the middle of cities. And uh, a lot of times it was unclear who even really fired that to begin with. And mm-hmm. even Winston started to wonder if maybe the government itself was firing those. But it was just kind of a, a reminder as it blew up in the middle of the city that, hey, we're still at war. 
And that's exactly yeah. how I feel about these uh, beheading videos. I think that uh, anybody with uh, some good Photoshop skills can, you know, there's, I, and me and Andrew talked about this at nauseum, but these videos, quote unquote videos, if you actually go out there and, you know, put on a macabre hat for a moment and look for the videos, mm-hmm. you won't find one where you actually see someone being beheaded by an ISIS person. Uh, they're mm-hmm. all just uh, mock-ups that are cut away, and then you see a Photoshopped image of a head laying yeah. on a body. So, yeah. Uh, well, I guess the analogy that I thought of when I saw that going on and how people responded and what to do, when they followed their, nat- their natural instincts of being offended and wanting to do something, Back in the 1800s, when we had another group of people to eradicate, it wasn't Muslims at the time, it was the American Indians, also people of another faith and culture. And what would happen is people would get fatigued, you know, in the Indian wars and and exterminating them. And so what would they do? They would send back some stories through the Telegraph or the newspapers of some, some pioneer women that got scalped, you know, and and the massacres. Uh, the, all it took was just a few heart-tugging stories and some pioneer women out on Apache territory. And then every public was ready to just annihilate all the Indians. Plains Indians, Cheyenne, I don't care who they are, you just eradicate all of them. And that's, and they, you know, they can play them like a violin. And that's what the public has done with this. It's like, well, we, we just need to kill all these people. We need to just wipe out all of them. It's not, there's a handful of perpetrators. And I would guess, um, I've not researched this, but I would guess some of those scalps that were done and, and frequented back to the news wires back in those days were probably done by guys who were white people, Caucasians, that were employed to uh, take off some scalps and blame it on the Indians. Not to say the Indians may have not done their share of it, but I can guarantee that when the time was right politically, there were some guys that could be paid off to do that kind of stuff. I, I mean, heck, we had our, our founding fathers dressed up like Indians dropped tea in the harbor. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a long track record of that. So um, I, I would expect that is done just because people have an agenda where they want to wipe out people. And these things grab the public's attention. Right. You know, was it was it uh, Stalin that said, like, one lost life is a tragedy and million is a statistic, something to that effect. And, and they got to put a face on these people to get people motivated to go pick up the guns and you know world war one it was the uh the rape of belgium and the belgian women and these other people in the gulf war it was the supposed kuwaiti nurse who testified of the babies the iraqi soldiers threw out of the incubators they took the babies out of the incubators who we found out later that the, the woman was not a nurse she was the daughter of the Kuwaiti ambassador with the knowledge of the Bush administration totally pulled the wool over Congress to get a war declaration and nobody was held accountable. Nobody went to jail for lying before Congress. None, none of this. And so, you know, to, to me, that's sort of how I see when I see these things. It, it's someone really bad. It's sad. It's tragic. Of course, if somebody goes over there in an area that's harm's way, uh, they run a risk, you know, on their own. And I just want to tell all, everybody who's ready to go over there and wipe these guys up, go to it. Go get you a, a gun, a rifle, and go over there. See if you can figure out who the bad guys really are. Good luck. There you go. There you go. Good luck. 
August 31st, Hollywood celebrities hacked. Um, a bunch of naked photos were leaked out. I don't know if you know about this, Dr. Future. I think you're just out of the news enough that you might have caught part of this. But a bunch Were there of- any of you or I that were released? None. None. Okay. Good. Uh, one of the things I think that that taught us, if you want to even skip over the idea of put, taking naked pictures of yourself and putting them anywhere. Uh, but one of the things I think that teaches us, though, is uh, the dangers of cloud storage. <laughs> the idea that the stuff that you take and you save somewhere can eventually be accessed by someone and then leaked uh, at the most embarrassing moment possible for you. I think it's a good hey, I'm, I'm a Luddite. I'm a Luddite. I have moved because of this last crash of my computer. Mm-hmm. I have a separate computer offline just to do my writing. There you go. Because everything is available. I'm a very anti-cloud person. That's Everybody okay. else trusts it, but they don't even stop to think no, about the fact that there's economic exploitation, espionage can be done of it. There's framing. I mean, if you, heaven forbid, you go run for office, you know, that stuff's going to be circulated to 10 buck 2 mm-hmm. if you ever run a place that's a threat to somebody. Sure. Uh, so, um, yeah, just expect CIA, FBI, they all get in line. Using that kind of stuff. So, uh, other than listening to certain podcasts, which are invaluable, I would say stay clear of all of it. Agreed. Agreed. Next up, they got the Mexican protests on the 26th of September and then the Hong Kong protests on the 28th. I think those are great examples of stories that the American media didn't know how to spin. (laughs) And so they didn't really focus too much on them. Uh, And unfortunately, because of that, I don't know much about them. Uh, we right. will finish up with a couple, uh, two to be exact. We're gonna co- we're gonna finish up with two stories, and we try to end on the lighter note here on this show because we talk about such dark stuff. So these two stories we can definitely frame in a funny way. Let me preview them before we finish it up. Republicans seize the Senate in U.S. midterms, and then the last one being Sony was hacked. So uh, first off, Republicans seize the Senate. I found this uh, election to be. Um, more humorous than most. I found that uh, a lot of my uh, Christian brothers and sisters were rallying around the Fox News TV set to say, yeah, let's get going. Let's take this country back. Let's turn things around. Uh, and it, it, and instead of infuriating me this time around, I guess it's all coming with age or experience, mm-hmm. yeah. in, experience in this field. But to be honest with you, it just made me smile. So... Uh, what were your thoughts as uh, the Republicans you know, stormed the same, back? For the same us- reason you have, the same reason you just said, is is being an old geezer and the been there, done that kind of thing. Yeah. I sort of had a similar smile because <laughs> one is, I don't know if anybody can even articulate the reasons why they voted for X over Y. Yeah. You know, I you know to, to actually say, well, what's the real plan of what now is going to be better or what you're going to do different for this or that. And the other thing is just like, wow, now now we're in the hands of Mitch McConnell, <laughs> our savior. He's a guy, he understands the common man. You know, he understands what we're, what we're going through. I feel so much better about things. It, it becomes so ludicrous. And this is why I can't really in any way see myself voting for any of the two syndicates that we call political parties. That that you of course you don't vote for an individual you vote for the the graft syndicate sure, yeah. that they represent mm-hmm. and it's basically they they battle for every street corner turf and they have a front man 
on the ballot that they that they run for. And so uh, I can't see anyone other than a dark horse that, that I could take seriously enough. But, you know, it's going to be one of these things where I'll probably be chewing nails uh, when I see particularly the Republican debates because everybody's going to try to outdo each other and how fast they can destroy the Middle East and who who would, would be the most aggressive to drop the nuclear bombs on, on Iran first. And uh, you'll have some guys like the minister, Huckabee and others, probably say again how he wants to escort them to the gates of hell and, and things like that. And so, you know, you almost have to look at it as an absurd theater. And if it wasn't for the fact that the stakes could be so high, it wouldn't matter that much. You would just see it as a, as a, a total buffoonery and a mirror held up against our public. You know, this is a public who is totally obsessed with, uh, what's her name, Butt, with, mm-hmm. um, Kardashian. Sure. And that's what these guys are, just another butt that they're fascinated with. <laughs> and so, you know... I got to log on to Twitter and tweet this out. Uh, Mitch McConnell is just the new Kim Kardashian's butt. <laughs> yeah. These are the butts that, that modern American society is fascinated with. And um, so, you know, they get what they deserve. Whether it's Bill Clinton, whether it's any of these other kind of people, they get the reflection of themselves. And uh, it's sad that everybody else is drugged down with it, a minority of people. You know, the same thing happens in other countries. You know, in, in Israel, you've got almost half the public that does not want to kill the other people in the Middle East, that actually cares about their interest as much as their own, actually believes in the golden rule. But the problem is they have a little less than 50%. And so you get these little micro-religious parties in Israel and their parliamentary system that can go jump with the Lakutists and push them over the bar. And uh, so, you know, they have the same lament because then people get killed in mass over their wishes, and the same thing will happen in our own country, too. And so people, those of us who are people of faith, recognize our limits, recognize we haven't really stretched our limits because we haven't done enough out of our comfort zone, but we do have a limit, and that's why we need to get on our knees and ask for God for mercy, not necessarily for ourselves, but for the victims. You know, Christians need to quit looking out for number one and worrying about how, who's going to be getting after us. And we need to be our brother's keeper, worry about the rights of other people. And so that's the thing that disturbs me coming up, because I don't, I, I see a scenario where everybody loses. Yeah. Amen to that. You don't. You're not going to uh, get an argument from me on that. On that track, we are of the same mind. Um, I promise to wrap it up on a light note, and here we are. Sony hacked. This story to me is almost a great story to wrap up on, uh, just in the way that it's so ridiculous. Um, uh, let me tell you real quick. And I have a couple. I had a story in here somewhere in my folder to actually kind of. Uh, begin to explain this, but let's see if I can pull it up here, Dr. Future. So, you know, the gist of the story is basically that we have to, uh, North Korea has, has, has attacked Sony over some movie and we have to Mm -hmm. defend that movie at all costs or else we're going to have to, uh, 
less free speech. Yeah, we'll have to kowtow to them. It's free speech to mm-hmm. say that. Now, uh, the, the Great No Agenda show, of course, pointed out recently that midway through this year, they told the uh, American servicemen and women who had come home from serving in Iraq and Afghanistan to not wear pins, to not wear U.S. Army mom bumper stickers, or to put put those on their car, and to not wear uh, proud Navy parent uh, shirts because they didn't want, this is the government recommending that uh, the veterans would not put these on to identify themselves because that would just invite attacks by Al-Qaeda or ISIS. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, we put out a movie that's a satirical version of uh, killing of Kim Jong-un, and people say, well, that's too far. We're certainly not going to not put this movie out because Kim Jong-un is going to get upset about it. We can't be doing that. It's all about, uh, you know, it's all about free speech or whatnot. But I'll read the story just real, real quick from you. Sony execs convinced the hacking is an inside job. Sony execs are now convinced someone who worked inside the studio is behind the massive <laughs> hacking because no one on the outside could so precisely target the, the compromising information. Multiple sources connected to the studio tell TMZ the strong prevailing view is that North Koreans are probably involved, but they use someone with intimate knowledge of the Sony email system to laser in on the most embarrassing information. We're told that the people at Sony who are investigating believe the hackers had intimate knowledge of mail systems and their configurations. They also believe they had knowledge of the internal media distributions, internal IT systems, internal uh, human resources, and even had access to a number of their passwords. Several people suggested a possible link between the hackers and the Sony layoffs, which included a large number of IT employees. So, Dr. Future, I'd just like to point out to you that Sony laid off 7,000 people this year, around 5,000 in June, and then 2,000 just before Thanksgiving of this year in November. And of those 2,000, it laid off almost its enti- half of its entire Internet security department. You do great homework. <laughs> I try. But this is a, a funny story because immediately afterwards, we're told that it was North Korea. North Korea doesn't have six computers to rub together. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. now, now they're hacking mainframes and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, even the Sony execs admitted right away that they thought it was an inside job. But this thing, I think this the... Uh, Inside job people are going to get let off the hook and that this is all going to go down as some sort of North Korean cyber criminal thing. And, of course, it's good for everybody, right? This way we can sell more weapons to South Korea. You know, the Department of Defense can get up there in Congress and say, oh, my gosh, they they hacked this company. They could be coming for us next. We got to pump more billions into cyber. And on and on and on it goes. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know what to say. You know, I'm trying to I'm trying to work up a, enough care interest. Uh, I'm not losing any sleep over the uh, affairs of Sony. Um, the, the you know I'm, I'm torn up by this. Yes, I do believe in free speech. I believe people, whether it's a uh, um, satanic versus uh, fellow whose name just escaped me, um, or whoever, to be able to say their peace and freedom. In fact. One of the only things that America has contributed to the world, and I'm sorry, it's not the Constitution. There have been other similar constitutions. It's not the verbiage about God. There's other 
countries have verbiage about God. It's certainly not our military. It's the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights is, is the one real legacy of America's contribution to world society and protection because democracy, there's no way democracy can become anything other than mob rule without protection of minorities and their participation in society. So, uh, you know, the Bill of Rights is an important thing that I will cling to, to, to protect. But having said that, there's different ways to protect your rights, particularly in the business world. Um, fighting a war over a, a corporate dispute doesn't sound to me to be a good idea, even though that's been how most wars have been fought in the past. Um, you know, if Sony's got a beef, let them go sue them in court. You know, let them, let them go collect on it. Sony's probably got enough money. They can hire some mercenaries to go take him out. If that's what they want. And they can film it at the same time and sell the video. <laughs> So, you know, there's there's ways they can do stuff, but when you mention the fact that this can be used for them to increase the cybersecurity budgets and all that kind of stuff, sadly, that that certainly could be a plausibility for these things to be done for that very purpose. That 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 can't be dismissed. That there is some complicity for that sake. What what role North Korea has other than just being a boogeyman? I don't know what it is. Um it's just sort of a buffoonery, you know. It's it's the uh, who, who was the guy? Emmanuel Goldstein, I guess, in nineteen eighty four. They sort of served that to some degree, um, and um, so you know. Again, I'm not losing any sleep sleep over what's what's happened to them. You know, I find real disputes among in my circles among people who say, you know, that was a bad idea to make that. They shouldn't have been doing this about a you know a living head of state and they deserve what they got and others that say hey they ought to be able to have free speech uh, regardless of what they say and I don't know I wonder well I guess there have been dramas about the assassination of a sitting president I guess those things have been, have been done um, but you know there's limits here there's always so much stuff you can get about with with the American government as well too so um you know, I hate for us to be hypocritical, but, uh, I, you know, I guess it's a portent of things to come. Well, I couldn't have said it any better myself. And, uh, having aimed for an hour, we've gone almost three. Uh, Dr. Future, I appreciate you coming on. I apologize for not having a very hard outline of uh, the direction we should take today. But uh, I knew that if I could get you revved up, that you'd get going and that uh, you'd produce gold. And I was not disappointed. Uh, I appreciate you coming on. I'm excited to read your book or your manuscript or really anything that you put out. And uh, book series. Hopefully, you're exactly your book series. And uh, hopefully, we can have you back on the show again very soon. Maybe this time, Andrew could find it in his heart to forgive you and come back on. Well, I doubt. I doubt he would. And uh, I don't know why he's protesting my presence there, but. Um, I, I don't know in three hours if I've got a thing that was worth anything to stick on people's mind or not. A copy of this podcast, as well as links to each story covered, are available at revelationsradionews.com. 
To contact Andrew and Tim or to support Revelations Radio News, please visit revelationsradionews.com and click on the Contact tab or Support tab. Please check out the other podcasts at revelationsradionetwork.com. And thank you for your support of this podcast. You just don't invade another country on phony pretext uh, in order to assert your interests. I have no idea what you're talking about.